heart of where innovation, money, and power collide. In Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, China on lockdown, sparking a sell-off across Chinese stocks, delays in exports of just about everything to countries around the world, and comparisons to the 2008 financial crisis. This on top of concerns about China's ties to Russia, we will discuss. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg lays out his vision for the metaverse at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. From avatars and creators to the future of work, will critique his take on the economies of the future. And my exclusive conversation with the brand new CEO of Allraise, working to raise up more women in tech, how she plans to make much needed change that has so far seemed impossible. We'll get to all of that in a moment, but first stocks rallying with Ukraine and Russia on track to restart talks and President Biden set to travel to Europe. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta to walk us through the day and Kriti oil tumbling. So what sent stocks back up? Well, exactly that. The idea that that commodity shock might not be as acute, might not be as huge as perhaps former realized. Of course, it does come down to geopolitics at the end of the day. But we do know that oil has seen quite a bit of volatility. And as a result, stocks have too. But today, for the better, you do have the Nasdaq outperforming up almost 3% on the day. The first uh, positive day for the S&P 500 in four really tells you there is a little bit of a relief rally. But keep in mind, some of this might simply be ahead of the FOMC meeting that we do have tomorrow. So you do have yields actually pretty stable right now. Remember, we are expecting a 25 basis point hike. But Emily, here's the concern as we go into the Fed meeting tomorrow. The last time we were here in terms of financial conditions, I believe we have a terminal. Uh, the last time we were here in terms of the tightness of the financial conditions, it was the end of 2018. It tells you here that at the end of 2018, when we are at the same levels, the Fed was talking about pausing their rate hike regime, not starting one. And that really speaks to the amount of scrutiny that the uh, commodity kind of input or the commodity shock has put on the markets broadly. And that's really where the concern lies. At what point does the Fed actually create an even bigger drop in the market? But nevertheless, the bigger drop isn't here in the States, Emily. It's abroad. It's in China. It's with those ADRs. And you can see a 76% drop in the NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index for those ADRs. Names like Alibaba, JD, of course, this comes on the back of not just the idea uh, that there is that regulatory crackdown that's been going on for a while. But now that China is pretending aligning itself with Russia. Also, the idea that the J that JP Morgan has now downgraded 28 of these stocks yesterday to, quote, uninvestable. That, of course, putting some pressure. But nevertheless, it's not all red all the time. You do have some pockets of during the question is who's buying this and for how long. All right, Kriti, thank you. I want to stick with the sell-off across Chinese stocks and bring in Bloomberg executive editor Tom Giles. Tom, some folks comparing the sell-off that we're seeing here to the 2008 financial crisis. Could it get that bad? We are seeing the conditions for a calamity right now in a lot of these shares, Emily. It doesn't look good. And it's coming from every side. You're seeing it first and foremost geopolitically. Will How far will China go in supporting Russia? The U.S. is sending a signal that it's very concerned about China doing so, in which case the U.S. could be in line for sanctions against Chinese companies. That in itself 
is a major concern for investors in Chinese securities. What happens if you start to see higher tariffs, other sanctions that impose limits on our ability to import? Just in the technology sector alone, we imported $133 billion in high-tech exports from China in 2020 alone. If you started to see barriers to that, you're seeing major disruptions to Chinese companies, major disruptions to U.S. companies, major halt to the uh, flow of goods along the supply chain. And that's just one of several factors that we're looking at right now, Emily. Meantime, we're also seeing COVID-induced lockdowns across the country. Shenzhen in particular, which is home to something like half of, of, of global exports. We're looking at orders of just about everything via companies like Amazon and Walmart to other parts of the world being delayed. You know, how serious is this? Yeah, if well, what we're hearing from inside Shenzhen and other parts of China is just a, the lockdown is having serious implications on the ability of these companies to get products manufactured, to get them fulfilled, to get them out the door on planes into the U.S. Big implications given just how much, how important that region in particular is to the exports from China. How long is it going to last? How deep is the, is the lockdown going to be? Lots of questions um, about how long and how deep it's going to last. Beyond that, you also have the possibility of the SEC cracking down on Chinese companies that are listed here over concerns about a lack of, of, of disclosure. And then finally, within China itself, we've seen this ongoing crackdown against the big tech companies, most recently questions about Tencent and about you know, allegations that it may have run afoul of anti-money laundering rules in China. Altogether, bad news for Chinese ADRs. All right, lots to continue to watch. Tom Giles, thank you for those updates. Meantime, President Biden traveling to Europe next week for face-to-face -face talks with European leaders to address Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The president will travel to Brussels, Belgium later this month, where he will join an extraordinary NATO summit on March 24th to discuss ongoing deterrence and defense efforts in response to Russia's unprovoked and unjustified attack on Ukraine, as well as to reaffirm our ironclad commitment to our NATO allies. President Biden also attending a European Council summit where there are efforts to impose sanctions and further uh, humanitarian aid, get it to where it needs to be most. Our Emery Horter with us now from Washington. Emery, tell us more what we know about the president's trip and, you know, what kind of impact that could have. Well, Jen Psaki also mentioned that the president really is a firm believer in face-to-face -face diplomacy. And throughout this entire process, whether it was before the invasion, sharing the intelligence with NATO allies or following the invasion, making sure the United States was in lockstep with European leaders. And when it comes to those harsh sanction packages that they've put on Russia, the president has always wanted to make sure he was in lockstep and really having unity amongst this group. So now they have this extraordinary meeting. And of course, they're going to discuss 
more deterrence factors that potentially could bring the war to an end, but also uh, the support they have for Ukraine. What's interesting, Emily, is that it comes just, this announcement comes just before Congress tomorrow morning is going to hear from President Volodymyr Zelensky. I imagine he is going to implore U.S. lawmakers for more support, especially when it comes to the military. Meantime, Amory, the other big story in Washington, Sarah Bloom Raskin withdrawing as President Biden's nominee to be the Fed's vice chair of supervision. How big a blow is this? Well, it's pretty big of a blow considering the fact that it doesn't look like they're going to have to find anyone else that on the Republican side that can support her. So Senator Joe Manchin says that he cannot go ahead with his support. He is a Democrat and he is a key vote in the 50-50 Senate. There was potential people talking about maybe they can look to Susan Collins, a, re a Republican, but sometimes comes on board with Democratic uh, voters. And that's not happening either. So she has now withdrawn. And Emily, if I could just bring you a little bit of what she said. She said it, be it what was going on with her became the subject of relentless attacks by special interests. And she goes on to say that her frank public discussion of climate change and the economic costs associated with that is what brought on these attacks. What goes on now is Sherrod Brown, the, the senator, says that they're going to move ahead with the president's four other nominations. Remember, Sarah Bloom Raskin and the Republicans uh, thwarting her step forwards meant that all of these Fed nominees were held hostage. All right, Emory Hordern for us in Washington. We'll continue to monitor that one. Thank you for those updates. Coming up, the future of the metaverse. According to Zuckerberg himself, Mark Zuckerberg speaking at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, shares his vision for the intersection of real and virtual worlds in the future. What he had to say, do we believe it? Next, this is Bloomberg. Mark Zuckerberg speaking at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, laying out his vision for the metaverse and how he believes Meta is building the fundamental technologies that'll make it possible. Let's dig into that conversation with Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, who covers Meta for us. And Kurt, looking at the highlights from this interview, I know we were hoping for some hard news questions for, for some commentary on what's going on in Russia, Facebook and its properties getting shut down. That's not so much what we heard today, is it? No, it's not. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg started the conversation by acknowledging the elephant in the room. Of course, this, this war that is going on, his service is kind of at the center of a lot of the information sharing that's happening there. Uh, you know, he, he, he said the things that you're supposed to say. He said, hey, I, I, I'm thinking of the people in Ukraine. There's not much, you know, that, that I can say that will uh, do justice to what's happening there. Um, but really, he didn't get into any of the specifics and he didn't take any questions about the specifics. And I think it's just a, a, yet another sign of how much he's giving that portion of Meta's business, that portion of Meta's operations over to Nick Clegg, the head of policy there, who's been very forward and public about the company's uh, stance in, in Russia and Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. So this was him kind of acknowledging what he, what he felt he needed to acknowledge, but then moving on to what he wants to talk about, of course, which is the metaverse. And not just the metaverse, but the economy of the metaverse. I want to take a quick listen to a clip from that conversation earlier. These are going to be basically creators who, who are basically building all of these different experiences. And I think that's going to create this massive new 
economy around a lot of this that, um, that hopefully will support many, many millions of jobs and people doing the kind of creative work that, um, that they want to instead of maybe the, the kinds of jobs that they feel they have to today. Kurt, do you buy into this idea that the metaverse will create a truly new economy? For example, how many new jobs will this create? I, I couldn't tell you how many new jobs, but I do think that it's going to open up a lot of uh, probably commerce-related initiatives and, and opportunities that we don't think about today. You know, he talked about the idea of even dressing your avatar, right? And, and just similar to how you have a wardrobe at home, you choose what you want to wear for work, for dinner, for play, whatever it might be, you're going to be presu presumably doing that with your avatar too. Your avatar is going to show up in different settings and, and you might want to dress or, or act differently in those different places. Presumably, you might actually spend money on those digital clothes, right, in, in much the same way. So that's just one example, but you could imagine that expanding to a bunch of different things, uh, you know, workouts, concerts, all the types of stuff that you spend money on today in the real world, but doing it in a digital environment. I think that's what he envisions as this economy surrounding the metaverse. Meantime, just a couple days earlier at South by Southwest, I asked uh, former Nintendo president Reggie fils his thoughts on Facebook and, and Zuck's view of the metaverse. He is not optimistic. Take a listen to a portion of that conversation. I'm not a buyer of that idea. I don't think that their current definition is going to be successful. Why not? Why, why do I say that? I say that because first, you know, and I don't know if anyone from Facebook is here, but you, you, you have to admit that Facebook itself is not an innovative company. Not mincing words there. Facebook is not no. an innovative company. I'm sure that's not something Mark Zuckerberg would want to hear. No, not at all. I mean, but it's hard to dispute in some cases because a lot of the stuff that Facebook has done really well have actually been inventions that were created by other people, right? I mean, they acquired Instagram, they acquired WhatsApp, they acquired Oculus. And while they certainly helped build those, those services into what they are today, a lot of the features that we know, stories, uh, reels on Facebook, which is kind of a TikTok clone, right? Facebook has become known for a lot of things that other people came up with. Now, maybe that's the difference between inventing something and, and making it uh, massively popular, which is something they're, they're capable of doing. All right, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, thanks for breaking it down. Meantime, last week, Bloomberg News reported that buy now, pay later lender Affirm delayed a proposed asset backed bond sale after a major investor in the top rated portion of that deal backed out last minute due to market volatility. I spoke about this with Affirm founder and CEO Max Levchin, but started by asking about the conflict in Ukraine, a country he fled as a child. Take a listen. I have people there. I have still relatives, friends, uh, former classmates colleagues um and uh it, it's horrible what's going on there and i think the the human cost the you know it, it's now of crisis proportions um don't have to be born in Kiev, ukraine to uh to understand uh, just how awful it is but certainly it does not uh does not help to uh to recognize the streets in some of the footage um i've been very focused on trying to uh channel all of our uh, family charitable contributions to um, refugee helping uh, charities on the Polish border. I think that's probably the most concentrated thing one can do right now financially to just try to offset some of the damage. Now, it's also having a, a macroeconomic cost, as we're seeing 
John mentioned a firm halting this big planned bond sale or asset-backed securities, a big investor pulling out. It seemed like this was going to go through. Why did that investor pull out? Um, so that's actually, you know, probably pretty important to set the record straight. So I'll, I'll, I'll start from afar, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll cover this very carefully. So first of all, we've known each other for a long time. You know that I'm an engineer and think like an engineer. So we built the entirety of a firm through this, this whole engineering concept of full redundancy and resiliency. So our servers have tons of redundancy. Our products have a lot of ways of accomplishing the same thing. Our funding for our loans, since we're not a bank, we have to fund loans from, from the outside, has lots and lots of redundancy. We have asset-backed securitizations, which is what we're talking about here. We have warehouse lines where we basically place these loans into a, a warehouse arrangement. Then we sell our loans directly through forward flow arrangements. The deal that we were contemplating executing last Friday was a refinancing of an existing asset-backed security. One of the investors, as you correctly pointed out, felt that the market volatility overall just made them decide to pause a purchase of, of bonds. And um, the deal had a real opportunity of becoming economically less financially attractive to us than our other funding sources. So we very quickly pivoted to place the, the same assets to a much better economic arrangement. And so it is correct that we decided not to do the deal, but this was entirely an economic choice on our part in favor of a firm. And uh, part of what we said um, yesterday to sort of highlight the point of this isn't just a choice we made specifically because you know that, that's what we wanted to do for funding. Our profitability guide was raised specifically to make the point that even as we shift between these different funding sources, we're not going to see any deterioration of our margin. In fact, we intend to improve it and expect to improve it. Right. So will you launch that deal again? And if so, when, especially in the context of the market volatility that we're talking about? Uh, is we're certainly always looking to both expand our funding sources and this is not our first deal and certainly not our last deal. And uh, as we watch the asset-backed securities market, We'll certainly come back to it with other products. You know, I've literally spoken with a handful of ABS investors in the last 24 hours and asked them, so how do you feel? You know, just trying to get market color. And the answer has been, oh, you guys are the quality and uh, the market is definitely very volatile, but there's flight to quality this accretes to you guys. And so we'll absolutely launch the next deal mm. when the time is right. A firm founder and CEO, Max Levchin there. You can catch the full interview at Bloomberg.com. Coming up, the future of money. We're going to hear from Mike Novogratz on Bloomberg's new crypto show to talk about the role of digital assets in the war on Ukraine and more. Next. Global stock markets have whipsawed investors in recent weeks with the war on Ukraine. Yet Bitcoin, usually no stranger to wild moves, has been locked in its narrowest trading range in more than a year, a trend that's likely to continue, according to Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital. He joined Bloomberg's new crypto show, Bloomberg Crypto, earlier with Matt Miller and Kaylee Lines. Take a listen. Let's say the dollar might never be the same, right? I mean, I think the biggest thing that's happened in the last 10 years in lots of ways maybe longer, is when Europe and the U.S. said, hey, Russia, those reserves that you thought were yours, they're not really your reserves. So what does that mean? It means the dollar or treasuries as a risk-free asset 
isn't so risk-free. It's not risk-free if you're Russian, and maybe if you're Chinese, you're like, might not be risk-free either. Uh, and so I think it's, we're entering in a world uh, that's unknown, uh, where people are going to struggle to figure out what is the reserve currency. The U.S. isn't going away, right? Uh, the dollar's not going away, but it's not well, going to be the sole place. And so I think you're going to see this hodgepodge of assets, gold, certainly digital, digital assets are going to be part of that, that bucket. Uh, the whole world's not going to flip to Bitcoin overnight, uh, but you're going to see more and more people say, I want to have some of my money outside of the sovereign. How, how do you deal with that debate, though? Because a lot of people are talking about the problem with cryptocurrency is that you can use it to circumvent um, these sanctions. On the other hand, people in the community are saying that's the point, right? We don't want government censorship to be able to take away our property. So let, let's let's talk big and small. There is zero chance the Russian government can use cryptocurrencies to circumvent. Right. We're regulated by 25 different agencies, Galaxy. And I'm sure, you know, FTX and Binance and the others have have just as many. And so almost all crypto moves through exchanges. Those exchanges have KYC ML processes, just like TradeFi exchanges. Uh, and so, plus Bitcoin is a public blockchain. You know, way back we hired Mike Morell, who had run the CIA, a week, Galaxy and a few other companies to do a study on Bitcoin. And he did like a 10 weeks exhaust, exhaustive study with the security agencies, with the three letter agencies, uh, with crypto companies, and he came up with a thesis that if you were going to design uh, a trap to catch criminals, it would look a lot like the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm. And so it's just, Elizabeth Warren is just wrong when she thinks you can use uh, Bitcoin for the Russia to say sanctions. And we're looking at it the wrong way. The Russian ruble has depreciated over 90% in the last 10 years. Just this year alone, I think high to low is like 65%. Huh. The Turkish lira did the same. Bitcoin is a lifeline to people in countries with really poor stewardship of their economy. And we should be thrilled that Russians can get some of their money in Bitcoin so they're not completely broke holding worthless rubles. Well, that brings me to the question of what the use case is, because in the context we're talking about it, it's essentially as a replacement for fiat currencies. Is that how you view what the fit future of digital assets is? Uh, listen, is it a store of value? So digital assets is a big word, right? I think Bitcoin has this really beautiful lane of being digital gold or a store of value. Everyone has a human right to have the fruits of their labor stored somewhere. And if you don't trust your, your, your government's currency, Traditionally, we put it in diamonds or gold. This is the first really digital version of that. And so I think that's Bitcoin's use case. Now listen, there's also a lot of other digital assets. There's digital uh, you know, stable coins or digital dollars or euros. Uh, there's things, Ethereum, digital networks, NFTs, right? And so the, the, the revolution that's happening isn't just in one lane. But I think for Bitcoin, it really is a place you store value. Galaxy Digital head, crypto investor Mike Novogratz there. You can now catch our weekly Bloomberg Crypto Show every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, co-hosted by my colleagues Matt Miller and Kaylee Lines, where they cover the people, transactions, and technology shaping the world of DeFi. Coming up, bringing women back to work, we're going to talk to Resma Shaljani, founder of Girls Who Code, about what businesses need to do to help get women back to work. That is next. This is Bloomberg.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Two years into this pandemic, working women and especially moms are struggling. We've seen women leave the workforce at historic levels. A new global study found that last year alone, roughly 26% of women left their jobs between just March and September alone, most because of their responsibilities to care for others. Joining me now, Reshma Shaujani, founder of Girls Who Code and the author of a new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. Talk to us about where we are right now as the pandemic hopefully winds down. What are we not seeing? What's different than we think? Well, I think we know that workplaces have never worked for women. And over the pandemic, you know, women found themselves without childcare, with managers who didn't get it, with partners who weren't doing their fair share. And now women are in crisis. Millions of women have left the workforce. 51% of working moms say they're anxious and depressed. We can't go back to a broken system. What can business leaders do right now to support women and moms in the workforce? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the tech industry in particular, where it's so male dominated. Yeah, well, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity. As you know, Emily, the recent jobs report that came out, 11 million open jobs. CEOs are desperate, desperate for talented workers to fill those jobs. So it's a seller's market right now. So I think women have an opportunity to ask for what they need. And what we need is affordable childcare. What we need is paid leave. What we need is employers who are going to support us on our mental health. We can ask for what we need. We don't have to go back to the old normal. There are companies like Netflix, like Microsoft, eBay, with really strong family and parental leave policies. Is that enough or do we need something at a national level? And if we need something at a national level, why has it been so hard to make that well, happen? I don't think it's enough. Look, many tech companies are doing, you know, they're making progress, right? They're offering some of these benefits. But for example, some technology companies like Facebook offer more in helping you freeze your eggs than in childcare. And we know that the reason why women are not returning back to work is because childcare is too expensive. Most families spend more for their mortgage, more for their childcare than they do for their mortgage. It is literally the, the largest expense for families. Paid leave. It's not good enough just to tout that you offer paid leave. Companies like Apple still don't have gender neutral paid leave policies in 2022. That's archaic. So you can't just offer these policies. You have to mandate that men actually take them, tie it to performance review, change the corporate culture. You know, Emily, we just went through, we're just in the middle of Women's History Month and we just went through International Women's Day. Today's Pay Equity Day. And in every single boardroom, there's a conversation happening about how to get a mentor, how to get a sponsor, how to learn how to be an investor. The conversations that I want to be happening is how to get your partner to do more laundry, how to get the men in this corporate culture to do more laundry, how to make sure that we audit our corporate policies so that they're not exacerbating gender inequality at home. Because until we get to gender equality at home, we're never going to get to gender equality in the workplace. And quite frankly, frankly, corporate feminism has been taking us down the wrong path. And I, I realize that, you know, for the past 10 years, I've been telling young women to lean in, you know, to girl boss their way to the top, that right. equality was just, a, you know, an express train to the corner office. And I found myself in the pandemic with two little kids trying to maintain a full-time job, and it nearly broke me. 
And I realized that having it all is just a euphemism for doing it all. So we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the system. And that includes technology companies who often tout that their policies and, and the fact that they're trying to lift women up. Well, now it's, it's time to get men to, to do more, right? Let's, and, let's talk about that, Reshma. It doesn't help that there are tech founders and investors out there like Joe Lonsdale perpetuating stereotypes about men taking parental leave. This tweet from him just a few months ago saying, great for fathers to spend time with their kids and support moms, but any man in an important position who takes six months of leave for a newborn is a loser. In the old days, men had babies and worked harder to provide for their future. That's the correct masculine response. I mean, there are almost no words. No words. No words. I mean, and so many female founders I know get asked, well, are you planning to have kids? You know, when are you going to have a family? Is that, it's as if being a, a mother is a distraction to your job. And it's why we have the motherhood penalty. You know, the reason why we have a pay gap is because is between mothers and fathers. The minute you become a mom, suddenly you're less committed to your job. You're unable to build the next Facebook or the next Twitter. And so we have to root out that discrimination, which is at its core. And oftentimes in tech companies that think they're libertarian, they think they're a meritocracy, you know, they do it the worst. You know, in, in many ways, rooting out the motherhood penalty is just an algorithm away. Tomorrow, every single one of the Fortune 100 companies could get rid of the pay gap if they wanted right. to. Well, appreciate you out there trying to shatter some of these stereotypes. Reshma Shaujani, author of the new book, Pay Up. Always great to have you here on the Thank show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tesla is raising prices on all of its electric cars after CEO Elon Musk said costs were going up. The cheapest Model 3 in the U.S. is now just under $47,000. Credit Suisse says the price hikes were between 3 and 5% in the U.S. and China. Coming along, speaking with Joe Lubin, Consensus CEO and founder and Ethereum co-founder about their massive new round of funding and the future of blockchain companies as they lean in to the metaverse. thought we'd be a 30,000, 50,000 range uh, in Bitcoin. Risk to the upside, not the downside. Um, but I think, you know, five years out, if Bitcoin's not at 500,000, I'm wrong on the adoption cycle, uh, right? We see an adoption cycle that accelerates. Uh, Bitcoin grew so much faster yeah. last year, crypto grew, than the internet did in its best years in the 90s. Mike Novogratz there of Galaxy Digital saying Bitcoin could hit $500,000 within five years. I want to kick off our crypto report now with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, bold prediction there from Mr. Novogratz. Bold prediction. And to get there, you would have to have Bitcoin rise more than 12 times, Emily. So you have to wonder, what will it take to get there? And what does that adoption curve look like? Bitcoin is trading below where it was this time last year. We have seen, if you take a look over here at the chart, a few days of a lift here. But that still leaves you only under 40000 per Bitcoin. So there's a large question about 
exactly that. What does that adoption curve look like? Last year, there was a ton of companies, a couple of sovereigns that have started to discuss adopting it at a greater rate. But what is 12 times the rate that we've seen prior? All right, Shanali, stick with us. I want to bring in our next guest, Consensus CEO and founder and co-founder of Ethereum, Joe Lubin, whose company just announced a new $450 million round of funding. Huge round, Joe. And I want to talk about how you're using this funding and also putting it to work in kind of a different way. Explain that. Um, thanks, Emily. Yeah, um, so we are taking in, we, we've taken in uh, $450 million uh, in our latest raise, and we've been working on uh, being a crypto native company. Um, we've been working on uh, uh, progressively decentralizing ourselves for years. Um, we built uh, infrastructure in the form of a consumer wallet, in the form of a MetaMask institutional wallet, um, and we've built institutional grade staking uh, facilities facilities and uh, um, we are converting um, the vast bulk of uh, the proceeds of the raise uh, to Ether, um, uh, both uh, because uh, we have staking infrastructure um, where we can generate yield on that, uh, but, but also in advance of the merge uh, where Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 uh, um, uh, affect the transition uh, between proof of work and proof of stake, and um, and that's going to bring in an era of what we like to call ultrasound money, uh, where the Ethereum token um, becomes uh, a very important uh, financial instrument uh, uh, in the global economy. The, all eyes on that merge, Joe, indeed. You've surpassed 30 million monthly active users with your Ethereum-based crypto wallet, MetaMask. And I'm curious how much awareness this is driving around Web3 and, and what's it going to take? What number is it going to take for Web3 to hit mainstream? Um, so we're, we're seeing... A lot of crossing of the chasm. We're, we're seeing um, cryptocurrencies, DeFi, NFTs crossing the chasm into mainstream adoption. Uh, very recently, uh, we've seen uh, another major crossing uh, where nation states are uh, considering this technology uh, to be of national security importance. Um, and um, virtually every nation state has to get savvy. Uh, they have to start uh, experimenting with the technology and gaining expertise and really wielding uh, the tools of uh, the blockchain and crypto ecosystem. Because if they don't, their neighbors will. And um, you know, monetary systems, financial systems are, are being wielded as weapons on, on the global the geopolitical stage right now. And uh, um, this technology is going to flip everything upside down, um, make it more bottom up, uh, build a new trust foundation. Um, and mm -hmm. um, essentially nation, nation states are are jumping in already. Um, and um, so it's, it's elements like that that will drive adoption. It's elements like uh, sports Joe. leagues and, uh, and many other platforms that... Uh, are starting to make use of Web3. Joe, to that point, you know, there's a lot of conversation over the last year on how to think about Bitcoin versus Ethereum and how Ethereum will get greater adoption on a global scale. How do you see the conversation playing out as people make decisions on what they're going to operate on? 
So Bitcoin is a, a very important construct. Uh, uh, we think of it as digitally sound money, uh, where gold is uh, physically sound money. Um, ultrasound money is this new concept um, where uh, the Ether token is burned on every transaction and a huge amount of Ether um, is being frozen, essentially uh, reducing the supply on the market uh, via staking in the protocol itself as we move to proof of stake and staking in DeFi and in decentralized organizations. And so um, uh, I think Bitcoin will have an important role going forward um, as a money, um, but uh, uh, Ether is a fuel uh, for the entire decentralized protocol economy, which is going to eat the world. Um, and uh, ultrasound money is a deflationary money. And so uh, we expect uh, a huge amount of value to, to mm -hmm. move into Ether in the next few months. You mentioned DeFi, but I'm curious about your take on NFTs here, Joe. We see volumes trending downward. Do you see this space being stagnant? And if it grows more, what would be the catalyst to help it expand once again? So our ecosystem moves in, in massive surges and consolidations. Um, so from tokenization to ICOs to DeFi 1.0 to NFTs to DeFi 2.0 to DAOs. Um, and so we're going to continue to see major new constructs emerge in our ecosystem. They, they tend to happen on Ethereum first. Um, and each one drives a lot of excitement, some irrational exuberance. Um, and uh, months of, of high intensity activity and, and um, growth of the ecosystem and increase of value. Um, but then we see consolidations as things shake out and, and each of these pieces uh, become fundamentally important. They become a foundation for, for the next uh, fundamental construct uh, to potentially be built. Um, I don't know exactly what the next phase is, but uh, um, uh, all of us in the ecosystem uh, essentially use these uh, these more relaxing periods to, to gird up our, our teams uh, for the next wave. Joe, a group of your former employees and shareholders are asking for an audit of a transfer of assets, including intellectual property you made from Consensus AG to Consensus Software Inc. What's your response to this quickly? Uh, so the mothership Consensus AG, um, has invested in north of 200 projects, uh, has incubated many of those projects internally. Uh, we've spun out 40 or so of those projects. Uh, MetaMask and Infura um, and our protocols team spun out together. Um, and um, so we, we've transferred intellectual property in many situations into startups. Um, the, the group in question uh, is um, seeing the value, the success that uh, Consensus Software Inc. is having now, and they would like to apply the current valuation to an event that was priced uh, by PricewaterhouseCoopers okay. uh, at their at uh, arm's length and uh, um, and done in the darkest moments of COVID, right. and so it's a uh, it's an unreasonable ask. Unreasonable ask. Got it. Joe Lubin, co-founder of Ethereum, CEO of Consensus, along with Arshanali Basik. Thank you for taking the time. Coming up, my exclusive conversation with the brand new CEO of Always. Her name, Mandela 
They say it all. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Accelerating the success of women and people of color in technology. My next guest has spent her career trying to do just that, and now she has a chance to shift into high gear at Allraise, the nonprofit with the singular goal to diversify the tech ecosystem. Joining me now, Mandela Schumacher Hodge Dixon, the new CEO of Allraise, in an exclusive interview. Mandela, thank you so much for joining us. You were named after Nelson Mandela, so I imagine change is something that is incredibly important to you. How are you going to change something, specifically the representation of women in technology, that so far seemed impossible to change? Wow, the million dollar question. Well, thank you so much, first of all, Emily, for having me here. I am beyond honored to be in conversation with you. And just like you said, my origination is in an interracial marriage of two civil rights attorneys who were part of grassroots movements like the apartheid movement, the anti-apartheid movement. And uh, you can just imagine the conversations around the dinner table that we had, but empathy, inclusion, diversity, justice, um, seeing people, valuing people is a core part of my DNA. And I definitely will bring that to the work at All Raise, where we support the success, like you mentioned, of women and non-binary leaders in tech. And I think the thing that I'm really going to add to it is my long history in community development. We support funders, founders, operators, LPs, angel investors. When you think about all the prongs of the tech ecosystem, they are within the all race community. We are 22,000 strong. And I think that going forward, if we have a more unified approach to how we are going to create seismic change, then I think that we'll start having different outcomes. Always was founded by power women investors who come from competing firms, but all want the same thing. More women writing checks, more women getting funded. What have they told you that they want you to do differently in this next phase of All Race? Yeah, well, there's a big focus on the founders. So the founders are the entrepreneurs, and they're really the linchpin of this entire ecosystem. And one of the stats that I know you know very well, and that you report on a lot, is this 2% number, this 2% of funding that is going to women founders. And I want to clarify for everyone that it's a little bit uh, deeper than that. It's actually 17% of venture capital in 2021 went to female founders. But if you break that down, 15% of the 17% went to mixed gender teams, whereas 2% went to female founded only teams, right? So we are seeing an uptick in the capital flowing to female founders, but whether or not they have a male co-founder, right? That's something to dig further deep into. But this question around why 2%, why does it keep staying here? I really want to ask a different question, which is who is owning this capital that is making the decision not to deploy more capital to female founders, right? If we continue to give the same types of people the same opportunity to take a swing at bat, of course they're gonna have a higher probability of hitting a home run. 
Part of right. the issue is giving women and non-binary leaders a swing at bat so we can get our capital, our mentorship, all hands-on tech, access to the portfolio founders, access to all that comes along with the capital to really have it be a strong arm in our business to get different outcomes. And spending those numbers a slightly different way, that means more than 80% of venture capital is going to all male teams, yes. right? You, you, were one of the, you were one of the first black women to be raising money in Silicon Valley. And I'm curious how that personal experience is gonna inform the work that you do. Yeah, you know, one of our board members, Jess Lee, who was the first female partner at Sequoia Capital, one thing that she brings up oftentimes in our conversations and even with our all-race community this morning is this notion of me being an insider but having uh, empathy and a deep understanding of being an outsider, right? Just like you mentioned, this is back in 2011 before, you know, Jesse Jackson was in Silicon Valley knocking on the doors of all the tech companies demanding for them to release their diversity numbers before before this really became a mainstream topic, I was a black woman from at the time living in Los Angeles who has a background as a teacher trying to break into this world. I had many things stacked against me, right? My pedigree, my identity, my lack of insider knowledge. And so I have a deep understanding of what it's like to break in as an outsider and also what it is like to transition from a founder, a two-time founder, a two-time operator, an investor, an LP, all of these hats I've worn in my now 11 year career out here. And so right. that is part of the magic of what I'm bringing to all rays of just understanding the nuances of this ecosystem. Well, change is certainly not gonna happen without a healthy dose of reality, but also optimism. So I appreciate hearing a little optimism in your voice. Mandela Schumacher Hodge Dixon, the new CEO of all rays. Thank you, we will be cheering you on. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're going to be joined tomorrow by Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, along with Jared Spataro, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft. He'll be talking about the future of work. That's tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. like how other girls feel about the trend of like the trendiness of women's basketball like it's kind of on the come up and it's cool to support it but like sometimes I feel like if some people just wear the orange sweatshirt and like 
even with NBA players, like, mm-hmm. they'll be at a game and all they'll show is the NBA oh. players. I'm like, that's not what that it's about. That bothers me so bad. Yeah, I'm it really bothers me. That. So I just wonder, like, how you guys feel about it. I feel like if it's forced, we really don't want it. so crazy having to ask for support though. Like, I feel like, bro, we be hooping too. Yes. Like, women's games be crazy. Like, it's so crazy having to ask people, like, you watch a WNBA game. Like, you love basketball, you love basketball. Yeah. Everyone's trying to survive, so every game feels like it's the end and you have to win this one to get to the next one. So, just every game is good from then on and that's like personally what I love is like big stage, big games. We work hard, we do a lot of things, and I feel like we should be able to earn money for what we do on a day-to-day basis. There'll be something that they think they can get away with mm-hmm. um, if we don't continue to hold them accountable. I feel like people don't really love the game as much anymore. It's more like what, what you gonna do when the cameras is out and like, stuff like that, but I feel like social media does help basketball a lot, especially with the women's game. It's helping us grow tremendously this year, and like, I just hope it grows a lot more, and social media can help that, so I hope they do focus on women's basketball a lot more. I think that's a huge point, just like the growth of the game, people knowing players individually now, Mm -hmm. um, instead of just like holistically as a team, and I think that's huge, but even talking about the new NIL stuff, I know a lot of girls, athletes, whatever, um, make a lot of money off of their social media accounts, and like I think that's real tough. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Loving it. <laughs> We're being honest, uh, but nah, seriously, I think it's a great thing. I think we deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'm a senior, and I wish I could have, you know, experienced it earlier on in my college career. But I'm just happy to see it finally happening. You know, we work hard, we do a lot of things, and I feel like we should be able to earn money for what we do on a day-to-day basis. Making money is, like, attractive to young people. Like, that's what they want. So, like, if your school's not going to let them sell a jersey or you can't do these kinds of deals, like, I think it's going to change where girls decide to go, especially the top ones. I definitely agree with that. And even like, I think some of the top girls are like, well, this girl's going there, so I feel like yeah. I might get more money at this, at this smaller school. Smaller school. It's hard for me because I really don't like social media that much. Like, I never want to post. I never want to do this and that. And everyone's like, oh, with NIL, you're gonna have to do all this and yeah. post all this. And I just don't want to do it. But at the same time, like, it's a part of getting the money and it's in all the contracts and all that. It's hard for my personality, but it's really a great opportunity and a lot of my teammates are getting to like make their own merch and do stuff like that. I deleted Twitter, I deleted all of it because like even our own fans come at us if no. we play bad. I'm like, you're supposed to be on my side. <laughs> but Fans be going crazy. <laughs> and they're like direct at you. Like yes. your Twitter ad is in the comments. <laughs> right? And like they have no idea what, e- what is even going on on the court. Especially the WNBA, like not every game is on TV. Mm-hmm. So like social media, being able to bring like highlights or even like the Twitter live stuff, yeah. like it gives another like platform for people to watch. So um, with the struggle of still like getting um, representation on the TV up, like it's a good place. I always wonder like how other girls feel about the trend of like the trendiness of women's basketball. Like it's kind of on the come up and it's cool to support it. But like sometimes I feel like if some people just wear the orange sweatshirt and like 
even with NBA players, like they'll be at a game and all they'll show is the NBA oh. players. I'm like, that's not that what it's about. Me so bad. Yeah, that it really bothers me. Like, so I just wonder like how you guys feel about it. Be like actual supporters, yeah. definitely. And then I think we in the middle of a run and you talk about John Wall here. Like, yes. that's, not, that's not what we <laughs> like, like, you're missing the shots, all day. <laughs> but like, one shot, one shot is cool. Like, I feel yeah. like when WNBA players like were to go to an NBA game, like that's not all you're showing. You mm -hmm. hit them once and then it's out. Like, yeah. I feel like if it's forced, we really don't want it. Like, <laughs> yeah. we appreciate the support, but if you gotta force like NBA players to wear the hoodie in the yeah. tunnel, it's like it's not genuine. Like, yeah. if y'all genuinely don't support it, then like, why even like make them do that? It just mm -hmm. don't feel right. So crazy having to ask for support though. Like, yeah. I feel like, bro, we be hooping too. Yeah. Like women's games be crazy. Like yeah. it's so crazy having to ask people like, can you watch a WNBA yeah. game? Like if you love basketball, you love basketball. Yeah. Bro. I mean, even for us sometimes, like we'll have like a double header. Boys play first and then all these people clear out <laughs> and they bring the banners down. Like that's crazy. Oh, but I mean, oh, like you said, not everybody just likes to watch basketball. So. The women's teams mm -hmm. are like on ESPN often. Like sometimes you gotta like go to Facebook to like Facebook. see the game. Facebook yeah. is wild. <laughs> Seeing the likes and stuff, the little hearts. I'm yeah. like, bro, can we watch the game? Like, that's wild. Maybe on their commenting list. Bro, maybe <laughs> commenting like, throw the ball in. I'm like, bro, can we watch the game? No. We got a long way to go. Yeah, man. Right. For sure. For sure. Even like the finals, like some of the finals games weren't even on like ESPN or a yeah. major channel. Yeah. I was like, this is crazy. And it would I... be like cornhole on ESPN. Yeah. Why we can't get on here and there's tag? People play a tag on ESPN. That's why. I even. Ocho or something. But I bought the WNBA pass, league pass, and I'll go to watch a game. It says this is blocked blacked out in your area. Yes. I'm just like, what? So I wasted my money. Sure. <laughs> like, how's it gonna like be blacked out? Like <laughs> I'll probably say like the importance of like mental health. I feel like that's a big thing right now. And like a lot of people are not really, I'm not gonna say taking it seriously, but like they kind of just like shoving a lot of things under the rug. And I feel like they don't really know what we really are going through as student athletes, just like living it day to day and just not having that like support and not having like people to talk to and just things like that. I think that goes with anything that needs like awareness. Um, I feel like we talked about a lot of like social injustice last year and since the camera's not on it, we're not talking about it as much. And I think that's a huge issue with anything that, you know, you kind of want to have move forward. Um, so I think, I mean, that was a great point, Liz, of like mental health, but I mean, everything in the world, you can't just have a month for it. Exactly. <laughs> We've never won one before, so it'd be our first. So I think that's a big legacy that we could do. We haven't won since 2016, so <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just trying to get one. <laughs> I mean, we just made it to the Sweet 16 last year, so <laughs> moving on up, man. Some type of championship, Big Ten, National, throw it all in there. March Madness is crazy just seeing like the underdogs being the top dogs. I feel like that's the best part of basketball in general is just you gotta play your hardest or you gonna go home. So I feel like that's the thrill of it. Yeah, I feel like in March, you see everybody's best because no one wants their season to end. And you know, you've been working all year for this moment. Um, and, and then like you said, it's always basketball on. Like at all times of the day. Everyone's trying to survive. So every game, like it's the end. Like it feels like it's the end and you have to win this one to get to the next one. So 
just every game is good from then on and that's like personally what I love is like the big, big stage, big games. We'll see. Right. <laughs> just, I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, that was crazy. Yeah, not yet. Like, you can't even make that up. Yeah, I play they tried it. <laughs> like, they tried to play it. Like, honestly, we went to the gym and saw it had like five yoga mats and two pound dumbbells. I'm like, what? It was terrible. Our like, practice gym, like, had the lights turned off. Like, it, there was no lights in the practice gym on ours. It was like a ballroom. Yeah, and then the reasoning was there wasn't enough space. They had a whole new gym the next day. <laughs> they, 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 the next day, they, they got it quick. Right. I'm like, y'all could have just did this at the beginning. Right. Yeah. But I think I think people will think about it, but there'll be something that they think they can get away with mm -hmm. um, if we don't continue to hold them accountable. I thought Sedona Prince did a great job did. in using her platform and mm -hmm. you know making that known that they were wrong for that. Cause it's a guts too. Like if I was her, I don't know. If I would have <laughs> went against the NCAA like that, like it's a big time. <laughs> and like it was just like funny the way she did it. Cause she was like laughing, like look at her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we in a zone at that point. Like it's not the you same. Smile. Yeah, I give you a like, smile. What the? Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> it's like a little yeah. head. Like yeah. oh, we know each other. Yeah. Like, like after the game. After the game. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's Apparently good. we don't shake hands anymore. We just wave at the I other know. end of the bench. The ones I play is probably Louisville. Yeah, I mean, um, I give us a, I give us a ball from, over here. From, from everybody, everybody. The starters, the people coming off the bench, they they crowd, everybody. I swear the ball girl was talking trash. Yeah. I ain't gonna lie to y'all. We're with it over here. <laughs> We're all about the smoke. <laughs> Just I will say, the, the Kentucky game was not our fault, though. They started it, okay? We were more want to be cool with them. They started That's it crazy. over there. That's, I swear, as soon as the ball was tipped, y'all was like, y'all ain't, ain't got this game. Like, y'all was talking from the tip. Dude, that's the mentality you gotta have, though. I mean, look at our coach. Like, we learned from him. <laughs> He's the start of it. I would describe my game as being a scorer. Um, I like to score the ball. Um, and, like, Last year, I've gotten um, gotten pride in my defense as well, so I've really taken pride in that. Um, but I like to score the ball anywhere, layups, uh, threes, <laughs> jumper, wherever I can get the ball. I'm a physical player. I like always trying to go with the motor, um, offense and de defensively. That's all you get. That's all I need. Nah, I'd probably say mine's just like versatile. Like I'm trying to expand my game a lot more, you know, shoot threes, like mid-range, uh, get to the basket. I'd probably say like I'm an explosive player. Uh, I think I'm more like passionate style. I love to like say and one and all that type <laughs> stuff. So um, I really, I'm really passionate about the game. So that's all I would say. Defensively, like I thought I could guard. And like my first game, we like chart like how many points you get scored on you and I think my first game was like 20 and like my heart broke and I was like damn like I'm really just not that defense is not my thing but we're working on it it's all about effort yeah. <laughs> so I'm lacking on defense I'm not nah, for real because high school <laughs> high school y'all are fucking <laughs> not you writing it down no high school you played no defense whatsoever that's why people was going like 40, 50 <laughs> Yeah, for real.
Hurry in during Ram Truck Month, where you'll find J.D. Power's number one brand in new vehicle quality in 2021. And right now, get 0% financing for 72 months on the 2022 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. For 2021 J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Not compatible with any other offer. 0% APR financing for 72 months equals $13.89 per month per 1000 finance for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital regardless of down payment. Not all buyers will qualify. See dealer for details. Take retail delivery by 331 2022 Oh, 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 O'Reilly. When you need auto parts, O'ReillyAuto.com is just a few clicks away. We offer convenient options for you to get your parts quickly. Order online and pick up for free at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. We'll even bring it out curbside. Or you can have your parts delivered right to your door with free shipping on most orders over $35. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities and where real talk lives. Online at FCBradio.com. FCB. This is now not another political podcast. They can't take it no more. We've been silent for too long. On the FCB Radio Network. Okay, live from CPAC, this is Alex Harper with the NAP. Colin Jackson, my co-host, was not able to make it, but that's okay. I'm always up for taking a free vacation. So I am down here in beautiful, sunny Florida, 85 degrees. And Cleveland, Ohio, where Colin is at, is 35. So (laughs) congratulations for that, Colin. (laughs) Sucks for you. (laughs) So I am standing, I am sitting here with the wonderful, fantastic Kira Davis. Hello. Thank you very much for taking the time out to speak with me today. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, welcome to CPAC. Is this your first CPAC? This is my first CPAC. What do you think so far? So so far, I'm interested, actually. So I I was just mentioning that I had a conversation in the Starbucks line with two 70-year-old black women from Harrisburg, PA. And it was interesting, their take, because they had actual points of reference from clan years. Wow. Um, growing up in Alabama and I had two, three cousins that were killed directly from the clan, directly from Jim Crow. So it's interesting to hear that historical context on some of the things that the whole woke movement that's going on now, because they were basically they were saying is that this is a lot of the things that are we're complaining about today were put in place by democratic laws or these other issues that were already in place years and years and years ago. So now come now, we're like, oh, we're going to complain about it, but we're going to get on the side of the, I'm going to say oppressors, but, you know, we're going to, yeah. in, in that aspect. So it was interesting. And they had they had a take, and, and I had never thought about it, is that we're looking for, as the black community, we're looking for acceptance um, from the white, from, you know, Europeans, white people, mm-hmm. um, and but we're putting them on a pedestal and surprised when they feel superior. But we're putting them on a, on a pedestal. <laughs> so, and that's such a good point. Yeah. So as I, as I was, I'm talking to them, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. She's like, we we put them in a position where they can judge us, and we're looking for their acceptance, while at the same time saying that you shouldn't judge us. We should all be equal. So it's contradictory. It, just, it doesn't make sense. And I was—I never thought about it. I in never that, in really that sense. thought about 
like right, that sounds right. really interesting. This yeah, it's like well, I need your acceptance. I need you, and then and now I have to like write laws so you can accept me, and I have right. to do, and it's like yeah, why do they get to set the standard for what acceptance is? Why yeah. am I looking for yeah. acceptance? Yeah, the, so one, the lady, and, I, and if I find her, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to interview her. Yeah, again. she 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 literally said. My life has mattered since nine months before I was born. Mm. So I don't need Amen. I don't need someone to come tell me that now my black life matters mm. because it's always mattered. And mm. I I was like, you know what? Touche. And we have to live like that. I was um talking to talking to my audience on Just Listen to Yourself, which is a podcast here on listen, STP Radio. Listen to it, listen to it, listen, listen to, to it. it. Just listen to me and then just listen to yourself and listen to things you're saying. But um, I was telling my listeners that um, one thing that I find disappointing or frustrating about conservatives and Republicans is so many of them act like they're losing. And I think, like, what would change if you decided to act like you were winning? And I kind of feel the same way about black folks, too, right? Yeah. Like, what would change for us if we just decided to act like we were just a part of America? Right. Like, we're not, uh, not to say that we should ignore, I'm not saying this, that we should ignore problems or not be concerned or not always be, you know, standing up for justice where, where it needs to be felt. But I've I guess what I'm saying is sometimes I feel like we have a defeatist attitude. Yeah. And what if we walked in victory? You know, that's a church term, yeah, but yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and no, but to, but to that point, so so um, now I have a family member. He's far militant. He's far, far. Like um, he's Mr. Black Power? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But we have conversations similar to that. And it's like, and he's, he's told me, he's like, black people as a culture, we don't really necessarily worry about what the day-to-day lives of white people are like but at the same time we want them to enjoy our day-to-day life and accept our day-to-day life and it doesn't make sense because if i'm not concerned about you then your then your opinion doesn't matter until it affects me directly And, and i think we're chasing someone's positive opinion of us we want everybody to accept black people. We want everybody to like black people. We want everybody to acknowledge the contribution we made to this country. But in reality, that's just not the case. That's just not, and it's not necessary. <laughs> like it's just, it's just a, to a situation where just to a point where it's like, why are we constantly saying we, we're losing or we lost? To your clear point, why are we saying we're losing or we lost? And in reality, all the contributions we've made to this country, mm-hmm. all the contributions we continue to make to this country, all the things that we do from every aspect of industry, how could we have lost? We're only saying we lost because it's someone else's perception of us, and we're allowing that to to drive us. Mm. So we're saying we lost because we're saying we're lost and we're chasing, like you said, that defeatist attitude simply because somebody else told us that we lost. Like, like So it's like... You went. We went through all the hardships that we went through, moving moving forward, and we're making progress to, I guess, be equal or viewed as equal. But we get too caught up in being viewed as equal and not uplifting us to be equal. Yeah. So so we yeah. we get caught up in hey we want your acknowledgement we yeah. want your just you know justification of how great we are yeah as opposed to just continuing to be great. 
That's what I did uh, in my position as uh, editor at large for Red State. You know, mm-hmm. which is conserv- obviously conservative yeah, yeah. blog, and even just with what I do with JLTY. Well, just this is a reason why I didn't take my show over to like uh, a quote hashtag like conservative network. I wanted like an urban network where I could like have a different audience or reach mm-hmm. a different audience, but also where you know my concerns like talking about this kind of stuff would be heard but the other thing is that I realized like my last podcast network I got fired from I had a really bad experience they're stupid I got fired because I felt that they were not taking my position as a black woman in the industry seriously Mm -hmm. and then when I brought that concern to them they accused me of playing the race card and it got really ugly I may have screamed may have. a little bit and got in my higher register a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It- uh, and ran away from them in a huff. And I was so angry. And I said to myself, like, I'm just so angry of being a conservative. Like, I'm out here, like, hustling in these streets. Yeah, you know, yeah, no yeah, nobody yeah. respect me. And, and, um, and then I just was, like, feeling sorry for myself. And I felt like I was praying about it. I felt like God was, like... Kara, you um, have a job. Like, you are the, someone's boss. Yeah. Like, why are you complaining? Why don't you do something about it? And I was like, oh, damn. Like, I <laughs> I actually do have yeah. some power. It took me a minute to realize, like, I am in a position of, of, of influence in where I work. Why am I waiting for someone else to recognize this greatness? Why don't I just go out and find it? Yeah. So I went to my bosses and I said, you know what? I want to start hiring black, more black writers. I want to go out. I want us to be purposeful about finding black writers. And they're like, great, go do it. Tell us what you need. Go do it. Right. And then even um, this week at CPAC, I told um, my bosses over at townhall.com. They have a booth here. They're sponsors of CPAC. I said, look, we, we never do anything for Black History Month at CPAC. But it's in February every year. I'm like, <laughs> right. let's have a black history panel. Yeah. I'll invite our black writers in and we'll have a discussion. They're yeah. like, great, do it. <laughs> do Tell it. us what you need. So a lot of times we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we're assuming that white folks don't want anything to do with us or don't want to help. But they're not just thinking on that level. When we sort of step up and be like, hey, we're here and, and we have these ideas and um, we just want to implement them. We're not begging anybody. We're not, and you know, it. it I think we need to be more proactive. I think we need to yeah. like understand the actual power that we do have sometimes. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And, and and what happens is we get so caught up in begging for those resources. And I'm using begging specifically because you can sugarcoat it and say, hey, we're these resources that we should already be getting. All right, we're not. But a lot of times we get caught up in the, okay, I got to run this past somebody so that we don't offend white people Right, later. right. Like, so it's like, okay, let me run this past. So you're allowing a gatekeeper to tell you that this isn't possible. When in reality, if we, if we come to the table and say, hey, this is everything that we got ready, we're trying to go with this, now it's harder to say no to something that's already a completed package and ready to go. Yeah. Like, like, but yeah. If, you're, if you're asking for permission or you're, hey, how do you feel about this or that? Now, now it gives them the ability to be like, no, I don't, I don't think that. And it's not; it may not even be a racism thing. It may just be they don't understand how this affects the culture that we live in every day. Right. Like so, it's like a hey, perspective thing. Yeah. So, yeah. if for example, if we say, hey, you should have a, um, we should broadcast the Martin reunion. <laughs> type thing, right? We should do that, by the way. We should do that. Like, that should have been on, that should have been it. like a yeah. na- national national holiday. <laughs> but so if we say, hey, 
this should be broadcast and simulcast across all platforms, yada, yada, yada. They're not going to understand. They're going to be like, why? Well, for the same reason you broadcast a friend's reunion. Yeah. But that, when you come to them, you say, hey, this is the idea, and this is why it affects this culture differently. It's completely different discussion than, hey, what do you guys think about possibly broadcasting a reunion? Okay, yeah, yeah, maybe reunion. Yeah, I was thinking, how about the show Martin might get the urban mm-hmm. audience? Uh, let's go with Wayne Brady instead. Uh-huh. Like, you, you, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so a lot of times we allow that to happen simply by not, like you said, asserting yourself, not, not asserting ourselves in yeah. the sense of this is what we're trying to do. And, yeah. and we're going to find a way to make it happen. We- you know, a good example of this is um, in the 90s, filmmaker named Mario Van Peebles, whose father is Marlon Van Peebles, mm-hmm. who's a great uh, black filmmaker, and he uh, was really a groundbreaker in the industry. And then Mario Van Peebles, before... Uh, Black Panther made a movie called Panther, Panther which is yeah, about yeah. Black Panther, right, right. which a lot of people were getting mixed up when Black Panther oh, came out. I, I saw that. I, I think Mario that. made a lot more a lot of money when Black Panther came out yeah, because because yeah. you got he got that royalty. Yeah, check. Got those, <laughs> people were like, "Oh, I thought this was Black Panther." But by the way, uh, best movie soundtrack, uh, Black Panther. Or, excuse me, Panther soundtrack Panther. is an amazing sound soundtrack. Go get it. Saw the movie, didn't hear the soundtrack. Gonna it's go, great. Gonna go. go oh my gosh, I still listen to it to this day. Anyway, he told this story. I was watching an interview with him and he told this story about how when he was shopping around it took him many years to get it made and he was shopping around Panther and he said I, I, I got really far in this pitch meeting I think it was like Universal Studios or something and I was in this pitch meeting and I was like here's this story about like this amazing movement and it's got everything that you want like action drama racial tension like it's got a lot of great stuff for Hollywood Right. and they were like we love it we want to make this movie but what about if we made the main character a white guy who wants to join the Black Panthers? So, and then he has to, like, he has the challenge of being accepted by them, and he finally becomes, like, one of them, and they really make a difference. And he was like, um, no. No, nah, that ain't how that works. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You know, and he didn't go, like, Okay, how could like you know anybody would love to sell a movie, right? right he didn't go yeah. like, okay, well, maybe if we work around this and change this, he walked away. He was like, no, that's not the package. Yeah. Um, and if you're not going to make this the way that it's intended to be made, I will move on. And it, it took him years to get it made, but eventually he got the movie he wanted yeah. made yeah. because he didn't compromise on the package. He came to them with a full package. And he was like, this is the package. This is what it looks like. That's it. So here's how I equate, because, and, and one of the things about even the nap and anything I do, any, I'm always unapologetically black. Like, because y'all not going to let me not be black. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no point in me kind of, you know, shimmying around it. Uh-huh. Like, even right now, I got a pick in my pocket. <laughs> but but the, the, what happens is that that compromise is like, okay, I'm going to compromise a little bit of my blackness so I can get in the door. Yeah. Like, so it's a, it's, a del- and it's a delicate cycle because it does have to happen at some points. Yeah. But when you, when you don't compromise, you say, this is what it is. This is... I'm, I'm, and then now again, disclaimer: you got to be in a position to do this because you know if sure. if you're the janitor at your local you know organization and you say, hey, I want to put up this African American flag, and they're like, no, you don't really have that, you don't really <laughs> have that negotiated power. But 
when you get to certain levels, and 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 I don't fault anyone for this because if you've gotten to that level, you've had to make certain compromises, right? Sure. But that once, goes for anything. That really. goes for anything. Yeah. But once you get there and realize the, where you're at, even to your situation, once you once you realize where you're at, now you can use that leverage, and now you have to purposefully use that leverage and purposefully do things because now that's that reaching back part. That's that you got to a certain place. Now I can. I can I can get a young writer on a panel, a young black yeah. writer on a panel, yeah. and this may be the springboard that they need to get to the next thing and the next thing, and then four people down the line. We need to do more of this. We that's, definitely that's do. That's what I yeah. like. I had that was a real moment of revelation for me. Like mm-hmm. I had not been thinking like a leader. I had just been thinking about like a, a soldier, like another soldier on the ground trying yeah. to scrape my way to the top. And it, I mean, honestly, like took me a hot second to realize, like, oh, I. No, I, I I have made it. I, I you know I'm here now, oh, yeah, and I can be of influence. And I would encourage everyone to look around you and see what steps you can take. And it's hard because sometimes I feel like black folks get caught in like the uh, crabs in a barrel mentality, Absolutely. where we, we start to feel like we're all crawl, like we only have this one little barrel, and we all have to claw our way to the top. And you're gonna have to like step on somebody to get there mm-hmm. and I just don't believe in that I, I I know that it exists that mentality exists but I don't think the reality has to exist and I think we can uh, all my friends do it you know of other races they do yeah. it like we can um somebody you probably should interview and I interviewed on JLTY recently was Devin Jones he is the uh founder of the South Chicago Southside GOP oh yeah yeah and, I yeah you he's a fascinating yeah. guy you should definitely interview him and you guys will have parallel stories um to tell about being involved in local GOPs uh-huh. um but one of the things he told me was like, I was sitting around waiting for the GOP to come to the South Side, and then they just weren't coming. And I'm like, well, hell, I'll just start a GOP myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's what he did. And right now it's him and a couple of people, but mm-hmm. they're really making strides in the right. neighborhood because they understand what their neighborhood needs. And they're not, like, as he put it, I'm not organizing mask mandate rallies because black folks don't care about the mask mandates right, they right. think people are nasty anyway, anyway. So, anyway I, and, but i'm organizing yeah. food drives or drives exactly. to help people pay their parking tickets really practical stuff yeah so and, yeah. but it makes it makes so much of a difference and even in cleveland i do a lot of work with the re-entry community right yeah and, and then so it turns into a lot of some a lot of times people don't know exactly what you need like what your culture what your group needs specifically but when you find that out, yeah, then you can help specifically. So now, yeah, you may not. You, he may put together, or you know, you may put together something in your local area that's a. Um, for example, I'm gonna tell you something. So, so something I did was I signed had a book sign up drive or book club sign up drive, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have a book club. I didn't <laughs> have. I didn't. <laughs> ne- I've never been a part of a book club, right? <laughs> so, so what I did, I just went to the local schools and was like, hey. Um, I'm putting together a book club. Da, 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 da. They're like, oh, no, that's great. We were, and I went to all black schools, all local mm-hmm. black schools. I was like, hey, hey, you know, I'm trying to put together a book club. What do you think? Oh, no, that's great. And it was like, well, how do I do it? Oh, we don't know. But once you get it set up, you know, we'll, we'll come help because that's something that can directly that can directly assist them. And and I think that and I did an interview recently, too. Um, and they were asking, how can the Republican Party get into the black community and actually, you know, affect change? And I told him specifically, and this is a white guy I'm talking to. I was like, you can't just send a bunch of white people to the hood and say, right. vote for us. Yeah. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't work because they're not even listening. They're not even receptive to what you're saying. 
Like you have to actually be of the community. So if you really want to get in the community, go reach out to some of these black leaders. Like have an actual intellectual, logical conversation with them as yeah. opposed to showing up at the churches in, in October. Like, hey, vote for us in November. Yeah. Like, like that's not going to work. And, and what happens is I think as a, as a conservative network, you know, Republican Party, however, however you want to put it, I think it gets to the, and, and to bring it full circle to what you mentioned earlier about the defeatist mentality. It's for the Republican Party, it's like, well, why go after black votes when they're only going to vote for Democrats? So now it's like, oh, yeah. well, you know, well, we lost that one. We need to put more Republicans there so that way it counteracts yes. who doesn't come, that, that type of thing. And... And, and again, it's like, and because we're at CPAC, I'm trying to keep it in the conservative, you know, in the, in the conservative Yeah, yeah, level. and that's the conversation yeah. this weekend. Yeah, right, that's where right, we're at. Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, in order to do that, you have to show that you really have some sort of caring about the, the community. That's right. So you can put together a, I just, me and Colin actually just did a diaper drive for a local, it's a black hospital. Um, that it's called Village of Healing in Cleveland, Ohio. Just if anybody wants to look it up, Village of Healing, Cleveland, Ohio, Lakeshore Avenue. Um, but we did a diaper drive because they just opened. So this is a black-owned hospital serving the oh, community. Wow. Yeah. And when people come in to get their child looked at, now yeah. they had they can take home five, six diapers. Yeah. So we, I think it was over like four or five thousand diapers that we ended up donating that day. But it's like specific stuff like that. So if that's a Republican-sponsored event, you know, something like that, or you just went into the community as a Republican. We just did it as black men, but if yeah. you went as a Republican or as conservative, now that helps to kind of shift the narrative of y'all don't really care about us. That that shifts the narrative of all Republicans are white. That's right. I, I keep right. hearing that. Like, right. All right. Republicans are white, and then so it's like it helps to uh, it helps to bring up the community because we can do that ourselves. But then again, it also helps to kind of shifts the narrative of what conservative and what Republican and all that stuff is. I always say, like, the number one question I get asked by white conservatives is, um, why are black people, they, they live conservatively, but they vote for Democrats? Democrats yeah. Which and, and it's true, like, Democrats... Really, all, their, all their platforms go against everything that black people stand for. Yeah, yeah, Almost yeah, everything. Yeah, Maybe yeah. they talk a game. They talk a good game about student loans because they know that that appeals to us. Carry it on the stick. Everything else they do is is anti-black. Everything yeah. from abortion to um, he just crime. he just sponsored crack pipes. Yeah. For the yeah. <laughs> he just sponsored crack pipes and syringes for the community. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, but I always say the thing is, is like I agree. Like I share the frustration. I do yeah. understand it. But the thing is, is that government goes to those who show up. Right. That's what I was exactly. saying. And exactly. Republicans are not showing up in our communities. But guess who is? Democrats. And they run 501c3s and they do, um, you know, they do like food drives and voter and then they attach a voter registration drive to it. Yeah. They go and pick up people to vote, go vote. You know, they're the reason why Georgia changed their laws so that you can't serve food within 150 feet of an election. Yeah. It's because of Democrats, because that's what they do. Right? They know that with the food comes, you yeah. know, a conversation. And then, but they're and plugged a, in, is a, my point. Yeah. And a card. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. They're plugged in. Mm -hmm. And as frustrated as that might make conservatives, you have to deal with reality. They're they're making inroads because they're there. Right. So we're not there. We need to we need to show up. So as you say, so that they know 
Yeah, we're on the ground and we care too. We want to send you home with diapers because guess what? We believe your baby was a person from the moment that that baby was conceived. Right. So we want to make sure that after you have that baby, you have all the support that you need. And you know, exactly. we, that's what we need to be doing. Exactly. And, and that, you'll get those votes because black people aren't dumb. And we're and just like stressed. But that's the yeah, <laughs> extremely. And and it turns into. It turns into it doesn't matter anyway. That's what the black community is it's like. It doesn't matter anyway. Whoever I vote for, they're gonna be crooked. No, right? You're, you're voting for the right. crooked side. Right. Your, your your perception is that the Republicans are crooked, and then you vote for the crooked people to put in. So now your perception is everybody's crooked. It's like no, you went out, and I say this on every show. Like to be an educated voter is to be more dangerous in your area because now you because yes. now you know, hey, this person's voted. Um, to increase the minimum sentencing rate or the minimum sentence guidelines for minimum mandatory minimum for the sentencing guidelines. This person's voted for that four different times, but then comes to you and says, we have to do something about criminal justice reform. Yeah. Why are you raising the mandatory minimums? If yeah. <laughs> we're doing something about criminal justice reform, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but that part's not spoken about. Only spoken about is the campaign point. Yeah. And then that's where you, it's just the talking points. It's all, the which talking is why points. that's why I do JLTY, right? My whole thing is like break down the talking points. Um, all right, I see that my next guest is on JLTY yes. is hovering around our booth. So yes, let me get. I'm, we'll wrap I, yeah, us we'll up. wrap us up. You'll be back though. I'll definitely yeah. be back. Yeah, I'll definitely be back. I'll be here all weekend. All right. All right. Well, so it was great, great talking to you. Great talking Alex. to you. I will see you later. All right. These days, it seems like everybody's talking, but no one is actually listening to the things they're saying. Critical thinking isn't dead, but it's definitely low on oxygen. Join me, Kira Davis, on Just Listen to Yourself every week as we reason through issues big and small, critique our own ideas, and learn to draw our talking points all the way out to their logical conclusions. Subscribe to Just Listen to Yourself with Kira Davis and FCB Radio podcast on Apple, on Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are more ways to celebrate than ever before at the Jeep Celebration Event. Hurry in for great deals today on the only brand that lets you go anywhere and do anything. And right now, financing at $2,750 total cash allowance on the 2022 Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Must take retail delivery by 331-2022. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. When you need auto parts, O'ReillyAuto.com is just a few clicks away. We offer convenient options for you to get your parts quickly. Order online and pick up for free at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. We'll even bring it out curbside. Or you can have your parts delivered right to your door with free shipping on most orders over $35. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Not another political podcast. This is the NAP. Okay, so I am here standing with the, the Honorable Congressman Donalds, who was gracious enough to give me a few minutes of his time. Um, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. So real quick, I know, I know you're busy and you're moving on, but so my first question is um, to really to black America, how, how exactly do you feel that the invasion of Ukraine from Russia um, is going to affect the black black community and how should black Americans feel um, with everything going on seeing as we're watching it from afar? 
Well, I, I think with specifics of the black community, I think the invasion of Ukraine really impacts all of America. And here's what I'm, here's what I'm gonna tell you. First of all, from an inflation standpoint, with the sanctions that are going to occur um, on Russia, it's gonna raise gas prices. And whether you're you know, in the black community, higher gas prices, higher home heating oil prices, uh, actually diminishes the, the spending power in your household. If you gotta Absolutely. put more money, more money from your, uh, from your budget towards putting gas in the tank or the heat in your house, or frankly, all the other things associated with oil, which is basically every product we buy. Right. Um, it not only has deep impacts on the black community, but every other. On a second level, the issue it creates, it puts America in a more weakened position on the world stage. Um, if Ukraine continue, if Ukraine falls, what's next? Is Taiwan going to fall to China? And I think for black America to understand that the most of the world's semiconductors and microchips come from Taiwan. So Did your know your iPhones, your computers, anything you buy that's electronic, your cars. If the Chinese control the microchip market, do you think their prices are going to go up or go down? Right. I mean, that's right. that's, that's right. why yeah, this yeah. is important to Black America, and frankly, that's why it's important to all of America. Oh, that, 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 and that makes perfect sense. And so my so my next question is is seeing as we're at CPAC and and there's not many of us in the building, but. Yeah. I, I know there's even less of them where, where, where you kind of be where you're at normally. So how does it feel as as a black as a black man? Can you kind of give me a little bit of your experience in the post-Trump era um, in Congress, where it's a lot of it's a lot of pandering from the other side, and you're on not necessarily on that side. I mean, I think that honestly, we're in an environment in politics where it's just super toxic, man. I think people have gotten into this: Are you a Republican or a Democrat mindset? Are you supporting? Uh, are you support President Trump, or you don't support President Trump mindset? And people aren't taking a step back and just being Americans, right. and just thinking about the things that are important to you, um, and important to your family, important to your community. I think that here at CPAC, man, it's just been love. People just appreciate uh, me being here. I'll tell you, there's a lot more black people here than I've seen in previous CPACs. Oh, yeah, so that's actually growing. There's more and more uh, black Americans at CPAC every single year. It continues to grow. Um, You know, do I think I got a part in the play in that? You know, maybe. But I'm just what I'm happy to see, you know, for our community is that people start thinking about their politics and not being afraid of what their politics are, not just being, you know, put into a situation where, oh, well, I'm black, so I got to think this or think that. You know, be who you are. Because, you know, you and I both know in the black community, man, we got so many different thoughts on so many different things. Yeah. Like, we're not monolithic, yeah. so we shouldn't be that way when it comes to our politics. No, absolutely, man. And, and listen, I, I want to thank you for taking your time out. I know you got somewhere to go. They put, they're always pulling at you. I, I just had an opportunity to hear you speak, though, man. It's very powerful, and I appreciate it. Appreciate it's all good. Absolutely, man. absolutely. This is Darvio Kingpin Morrow co-host of the Outlaws Radio Show. And if you haven't heard our show before, check out this clip. The most dangerous people for black people are white liberals. They're the most dangerous for black people. So these quote unquote progressive white woke people, (laughs) they are the biggest enemies to black people because you become vulnerable to them. Because they, you know, they say, I I got hot sauce in my back, you know. (laughs) You know, they, they say, you know, you're not even black if you don't vote for me. You know, this, this type of shit, man, that, that really causes us to become vulnerable to them. And what's more dangerous? An enemy or an undercover enemy who poses as a friend? 
Subscribe to the Outlaws Radio Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's O-U-T-L-A-W-S, the Outlaws Radio Show, and FCB Radio Podcast. Hurry in during Ram Truck Month, where you'll find J.D. Power's number one brand and new vehicle quality in 2021. And right now, get 0% financing for 72 months on the 2022 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. For 2021 J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Not compatible with any other offer. 0% APR financing for 72 months equals $13.89 per month per $1,000 finance for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital regardless of down payment. Not all buyers will qualify. See dealer for details. Take retail delivery by 331-2022. With zero sugar and refreshingly delicious, is Coca-Cola Zero Sugar the best Coke ever? Pick some up at Quick Trip today. Not another political podcast. This is the nap. Okay, everybody, it's been a long weekend. My first CPAC, it was so interesting. I, I met so many interesting people, so many great people. I can't wait to tell y'all about it on, on this week's show. Uh, so tune in for the full CPAC recap on the nap with my boy Colin Jackson, me, Alex Harper. Colin's still stuck back in the cold Cleveland. I'm still sitting down here, palm trees. And beaches in Orlando. I'm about to think about going to Disneyland, see if I can sneak my way in to go see Mickey and them. But tune in to the nap for the full CPAC recap, and we'll holler at y'all soon. The FCB Radio Network. First class broadcasting worldwide. Do you know how many files your employees have uploaded, downloaded, emailed, airdropped, slacked, or shared via Google Drive today? A lot of that data has left your organization, and you don't even know it. Visit Code42.com to learn how Insider prevents data exfiltration. There are more ways to celebrate than ever before at the Jeep Celebration event. Hurry in for great deals today on the only brand that lets you go anywhere and do anything. And right now, financing at $2,750 total cash allowance on the 2022 Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Must take retail delivery by 331-2022. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Welcome, everybody, to the Dukes of Gaming. It's good to be back with you this week. I am your host, Thomas, the Duke of Anime. It's good to be here, joined by two of my other fellow Dukes. We're down two Dukes, thoughts and prayers, whoever they are right now. But we have two Dukes here, along with me. First and foremost, we have the Duke of Education. Oh, I'm sorry. Duke of Design. Education's out. <laughs> the Duke of Design here. We have Ben. How are How you? Dare you. Okay. You don't like education? I, I you're you're just having me encroach in, into Alfredo's domain. <laughs> you got a lot of books that are not like education. It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are just for me as self education. <laughs> there we go. Self education. There we go. How you doing this week? Uh, doing very well. Um, missing our our uh, our lost in action Dukes right now, but uh, yeah. um, very happy to be chatting with you guys. And damn, I'm still super into Elden Ring right now, so we got to talk about that more. Great game. Great game to be into. 
And I think we have another Duke that's in the Elden Ring as well. We have the Duke of Rocket League. How are you doing, Cole? Doing good. I'm into Elden Ring. I rank it as one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, I haven't played much this week. It's been a tough week, but um, I'm getting back. I'm going to get back to it tomorrow night, probably. I'm I think excited about that. This is the first podcast me and you have been together since Elden Ring has dropped, I believe. Yeah, so I do have to I say, think for ben, me and Ben too. I think me and it I, is I don't selling. Think I've been ben. It's selling gangbusters. So we're on our way to that twenty-five million that I was talking about. It's doing well. It's doing well. <laughs> look, I look, I wish it all the best. I know I've come off as the Elden Ring hater. I know, but have I you played to it. Do well. You played, um, played that one time with me. I played that one time, and I've watched um, a friend play it. And if you want my just initial thoughts on how I feel about it. It is, it looks like it's a very, very great experience. Gives It's a really good, like, step forward for the open world genre. It didn't have what I wanted it to have, which was really, really good lore. Like, I, like I, that's the main reason why I wanted that game. Because you get George R. R. Martin there, you're, I'm expecting, like, okay, we're going to get a really step up in quality and lore. And from what I've seen and heard, that has not really been talked about. I think I think it is. I think it is better. I think the lore is better than the Dark Souls okay. games. Uh, okay. But it's. I'm just saying when lore. I saw reviews, yeah, like when I saw reviews, I didn't see anything about that. Well, do the you storytelling? Mean more, sorry, I think you mean more. I think you mean more storytelling, right? Yeah. The, the, because the lore is always seems to be there in Dark Souls. It's just it's the storytelling yeah. that lack. Yeah, I mean, like, like the traditional storytelling. Yeah, I I didn't. I thought it was going to go a different way than just being Dark Souls 4 open world. And it seems like the story, the way the story is being told is very Dark Souls. Yeah. Instead of more Sekiro, which I thought that's the direction they were heading into in terms of maybe not Sekiro, you know, as far as you can pause the game and it's really focused on the story as well. I thought it'd be more of that than what we got. But I'm probably going to play it at some point. I, I really do think it's a really great advancement for open world games. I think the story is presented to you more directly than um than the Dark Souls games are. That's but it's still hear. but it's still not very much compared to you know a story driven game. Respect. So that's that's what you all have been playing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Yeah I've been playing Cyberpunk too. How you liking uh, that? Uh I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. There's um a lot that I'm kind of like, that's rubbing me the wrong way, especially with the combat. It might just be because I've tried to spec into a stealth build, but I'm not like particularly good at stealth in the game. <laughs> I, I, just, to, just to get this out of the way for me, stealth in Cyberpunk is horrible. Like, it's horrible. I, try, like, I really yeah, did try good. to do that, and I just restarted characters because yeah. it's the way it's implemented. Like, it, you can kind of go stealth, just doing the like little contagion hacking but besides that like all the other stealth stuff seems woefully undercooked yeah it's i i mean it's it's kind of rough and i i keep like looking i keep going to ripper docks and like looking in the upgrade tree for upgrades that will make me better at stealth you know (laughs) like yeah being able to go invisible for a couple seconds or like uh you know just better better distractions that kind of thing um, and there's nothing that is like, oh yeah, this is this is the thing that I needed to unlock stealth in Cyberpunk. So I don't, 
I'm not confident that I can turn it around. Maybe I just have to respect, um, like you're saying, and and, and yeah. just uh, invest in different and I will, skills. And I will say, I I don't know what's changed as far as stealth goes because I was a, I did stealth for maybe my first two hours when I first started the game back yep. in a year ago. So I don't know if anything has changed with the update. There are, there are some changes. One of the biggest things is that you can throw knives much more effectively. So like you can, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen knife, that. knife throwing is a much more viable play style, which means like if you can hit headshots, you can stealth kill from range pretty easily. Um, but it's, it is very unclear when your headshot is going to actually result in, in the person dying or when it's just going to, it's going to do most, like it's going to damage them mostly, but then, alert everybody and that's like you know if you hit somebody in the head with a knife and it doesn't kill them that's the end of your stealth run <laughs> see and i like base knows i like the throwing knives as in addition to the combat and see that's that's the one thing i love about cyberpunks the combat when you're just going straight up if you have the right build it can feel very satisfying yeah like it feels it feels like an anime cyberpunk game come to life when you're playing that way it's just unfortunate that for people who want to do a stealth build which you should be able to do you know the fact that they obviously didn't put too much care into that aspect of it yeah i'm gonna have to look into respecting yeah glad you're liking it though i I love the game a lot so i was glad that we got another fan on board and then cole did you have a chance to play cyberpunk at all not yet. I played. I played the launch version for like fifteen hours, and then I returned it when PlayStation allowed us to to pick it up. I'm gonna pick it up after GTA Online comes out. Or whenever we're gonna do the Ben's Book Club, I'll pick it up like that month. Yeah, probably that's... April. Beginning. I was April. about to say you you gotta you gotta pick it up 2023. <laughs> play GTA. <laughs> play GTA yeah, to completion. I'm done. I'm glad the first half of the year was the first like two months were great. <laughs> yeah man that's good to hear about cyberpunk um i'm probably gonna get back into it i put about maybe two hours in after the update just to see how everything was and i was pleasantly surprised of everything you could do especially changing your appearance that was one thing i just never understood how how is there no barbershops here how how is like we're in there are dildos all over the place there's there's lights all over the place their cars all over the place but we can't have a barbershop i can't i can't change the appearance so there's no plastic surgeons even so i'm glad they were allowed you to do that through your mirror i I appreciate that should have been in the game in the first place but there's a lot of things that should have been there how how are the graphics are the graphics like the best would you say they're the best ever they look best ever (laughs) no no i mean i I will get to the game with the best graphics ever in a second Oh yeah, <laughs> but cyberpunk it looks fine it looks good i think it looks it's a noticeable improvement the ray tracing mode is horrible it runs there's some areas for me. in the beginning that were unbelievable like the lighting and everything to me it looked incredible. good like how a switch game can look good where it's like yeah Artistic. it looks good art like the art style is there but i remember like I, I, this this is not like a PS5 game when it first launched. Yeah, it, it's a good looking game, but I I think I, I kind of think about it the same way I think about Elden Ring, where like the art style is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a well put together game visually, mm-hmm. but um, it is not a particularly graphically pretty game. And and the 
console version, even the next gen version, does not hold a candle to the PC version because the PC version with ray tracing, that is an immaculate looking game. That is, a, mm-hmm. you know, Cyberpunk 2077 with with full ray tracing is an incredible looking game. Playing that on my friend's rig is $5,000 something rig. Yes, that thing looked crazy. Like it looked absolutely insane. Just like walking through the streets at night. With all the lights, yeah, it, it looks incredible. The console version was never going to get to that. But I think this update has shown me that they do, they have put a good effort in, at the very least. It's not exactly No Man's Sky. It's not there yet. And who knows if it will ever get there. But I think they're, for the first time since release, trending in the right direction. Is that fair to say? Um, and so, so you've been playing Cyberpunk. I've been playing Horizon, which is, like I said, the best looking game I've ever seen in my life. It's, I can't believe how good this game is for me. Um, I know Alfredo talked about it last week of how much he liked it. Where was Alfredo? No, no, no. Two weeks ago, Alfredo said it that. And I agreed with him. It was great, but I wasn't in love with it at that point. I just really liked it. Rolling credits, I got to say, this is one of my favorite PlayStation experiences. Um, it's, I think I'd have to put it comfortably at like my top four favorite PlayStation games I've ever played. Wow. It's, it's, you know, I can't think of a weak spot. Like, that's the main thing for me. Like, I really try to think of like, what could be improved? And like, when I get into it, it's all nitpicking things. The core fundamentals of the game, from the open world to the combat to the story to the lore, I think everything is there. Um, and I'm so, sh- you know, and I, I get, you know, the Elden Ring Horizon comparisons. They're both doing such different things that for me, it's even hard to compare those two games. I think they're both masterclasses in what they, what they, direction they went in. And while Horizon, I feel, is a more traditional Ubisoft style, like, you know, open world checkbox experience, to me, it's the best that that type of game has ever been. It's a game that has looked at how all the other games that have been in that genre, including the first Horizon, it's taken all the lessons from that and applied them. There's never a dull moment. I played it for about 60 hours. And I I know a game's good when I'm playing and I'm like, I I know I, I know how many missions it takes to complete the main story. But I, I gotta do these side quests. I gotta get these side quests in. Like I, I'm I'm invested in these individual stories and the side quests. And so yeah, this is as of right now, my game of the year. Um it's the best open world RPG I've played since mm-hmm. Witcher 3. Last time you talked about it, you were positive about it. You were enjoying it, but you were not over the moon about it. And I, I recall you saying something akin to, like, it's more Horizon. That's that changes. More... That changes. Yeah. 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 What, what, the... what, what, like, what, not only what changed it so that it was more like a sequel for you, because I, you know, we talked about that there is a is a moment in which the game kind of opens up a bit, but but what was there a moment that elevated it or a series of moments that elevated it Yes, for you into the stratosphere here? Yes. Um, the main thing that elevated it for me was the direction that the story took. And mm. by story, I mean 
the main narrative and also yeah. the quality of side quests. Yeah. Where that's, that's, that's good to hear because I, you know, I've said this before. One of my favorite things about the first Horizon, even though it's a solid open world game, uh, one of my favorite things about it was the main narrative. Oh, it was, it, I agree. It was incredible. It's the best narr- PlayStation narrative, I think. Well, I mean, let's just say The Last <laughs> of Us. I really liked The Last of Us too. Um, but to me, I would say Last of Us and Horizon to me fight for number one, like Zero Dawn. Yeah. I, Those, I was shocked like, at I how love, much I love that narrative. Me too. I love that narrative so much. I read the comic. Like I, so love this doesn't that beat, world. This doesn't beat Horizon Zero Dawn for you. Story wise, no, because okay. there's just like to me, there's a novelty in when I learned what was going on in that. Game. Like yeah. there, like there was, I was taken aback because I was like, I did not expect the story to head in that direction at all. Right. This game has a lot of moments like that as well. Just none that land like that initial. I don't want to spoil Zero Dawn too much, but that initial when you realize what Aloy is, that revelation to me was I was like, okay, this is a different type of story in a video game. Uh, you don't usually get stories of this quality. I agree with you on everything. I was thirty hours into Horizon Forbidden West, like story very, wise. Very... Story wise. Yeah, I was I was at the moment when you're going and collecting the different, not to be a spoilers things that you have to get the when three, it opens the up. Three things. Just the three. I was in. Mm-hmm. I had already done one or two of those. I think two of those. And see, that's when the game completely opens up my in my mind because yeah, no, I agree. When when you get those three, it honestly works a little bit like how Breath of the Wild worked, mm-hmm. which I was very shocked by. I didn't know they would do something like that. Where it's like Breath of the Wild, like, all right, you can go face Ganon, or you can get these four um, guardians. I forgot what they're called. This game is not, you have to collect them. There's no, like, skipping to the end. You have to collect these three things. But the stories that came along with getting those three things, and the fact that you can do them in any order, opened it up for me where I'm completing, like, most of one of them, and then I get to a certain point where it's like, okay, you can finish this one up or you can go to another one i'm like oh i didn't expect to be i didn't expect to be able to just go to a different level divine beast there we go (laughs) i'll say guardians but um yeah i didn't expect to be able to go to a different um area of the story right now i thought i was trapped into the you know just doing because you know in open worlds when you're doing a mission it'll be all right you're locked to this quest till the end of the quest it was like giving you a lot of freedom and i wasn't really expecting that and then the way I did it just felt really good to me story-wise. Being able to get a lot of the side quests done as well. I just, I really like how they, because I feel like there is like a formula to it where it doesn't feel like you're getting too much at one time, but you're getting just enough. To me, it hit that all the way. I, honestly, it just, it just sucks. That these I consider these three games came out at the same time, Witch mm-hmm. Queen, Elden Ring, and uh, Horizon. Because I was having a blast with every one of them. Like, I was having yeah. a blast. Like, we were, all of us, like, four out of the five of the Dukes were playing the crap out of Destiny. Yeah. And enjoying every, and like, seriously, having a blast every night. Then I'm getting, gotta, I'm getting on it this week. I'm getting on it this week. I'm, I know. Yeah, we still, yeah. Gotta, we still gotta finish the Witch Queen campaign. I know, we do. <laughs> I'm, fin- I'm finishing it this week. I, I started the first couple missions, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting deep, head, head deep into this. Are you playing on legendary difficulty? Mm-hmm. 
That's the funnest. That it was, was whooping that my was really ass fun. solo. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm gonna need Definitely. some Duke assistance for sure. Definitely. That was a blast. I love doing that. On, but I, I didn't think I would like it. Actually, Ben and Alfredo talked me into doing it. Actually, Alfredo was really adamant about doing it at the beginning. And I, I usually just kind of want to blast through it, but that really made it made each campaign mission feel like a mm. dungeon, <laughs> which was cool. Um, but yeah, then then Horizon comes out, I'm having Blast of Horizon, and then Elden Ring comes out, and I well, have not looked back at either one of those games. Well, when you, when games when a lot of games come out at the same time, it's but not better, at this pace, y'all. Then no, we got Cyberpunk, one, <laughs> we yeah, got no, Cyberpunk great, and GTA. Yeah, Cyberpunk, GTA, Elden Ring, like. This year blows 2021 out of the water. Like these, these past like 20 days. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's nuts. It, it is a little <laughs> nuts. Like how, how much concentrated good releases we're getting right now. Yeah. Um, and I we wonder. Just, we skipped Pokemon besides. You know, <laughs> I've, actually been, I've actually been playing that. I've actually but, been playing. Once no. I put down Horizon, I was like, you know what? I have this. Let me pop it in. It's. It's, it's crazy, honestly, dude. It's honestly just on... I'm not saying it's on the same level as Elden Ring or Horizon. That game does some very interesting things I haven't seen a game do. So, yeah, you're right. There's been, at minimum, you're saying three great, defi- like, really, like, industry-defining open-world RPG. You know, because yeah. Pokemon's doing... Innovating in Pokemon ways... Elden Rings innovating in, you know, in just open world, just what you can do in an open world. Like, like I feel like you guys probably speak to it more. Does Elden Ring feel like a game that is going to inspire other games in the future? Yeah. I, I think what it does is it, it, it cements the fact that, like, for whatever reason, it was glossed over with Breath of the Wild. No one else attempted to do this. Go out, no icons. And we talked about it a lot last week, but go out and explore and mm-hmm. no no games copied that no one did one did what this game well, called Sa- this game called sable sable there's, is there's been a few there's been a few and, and yeah, I mean, there was a, the, there was that one ubisoft game no no that, that was basically breath of the that, wild well that, that one no, was that, a, wasn't, that one that one was like breath of the wild in terms of climbing yeah, in combat. but it, it wasn't. But it was a lot of, there was a lot yeah. of icons on that screen. I remember. Tr- <laughs> but, I remember trying to play that game. Um, Immortal, Immortal Phoenix Rising. Immortal Phoenix yeah. Rising. Yeah, yeah. I tried to it play. That. I was like, it was oh, a fun this game. Was... I'm glad you thought so. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. I played I, it for about three hours, but it was oh, fun. Oh, okay. was three hours. <laughs> I played for three hours too. Okay. <laughs> I thought you beat it or something. No, no, God, no. <laughs> I put it down. For three hours. Oh, but it was but yeah, fun. I think Sable. Try Sable. Sables on Game Pass, it is very Breath of the Wild, like in terms of there's not a lot going on, but it's an open think, world you can go through. I think they'll, the, the, um, you know, they'll kind of start turning their heads and it cements the fact that, hey, let's trust the gamers more. Let's let them explore. Let's let them find things. I guess the one thing about Elden Ring that I don't quite understand is the gatekeeping about the difficulty. From the fans of Elden Ring and from software game because I'm playing horizon and I'm not saying like, this is just me. This is just, you know, me, not a big fan of these games, appreciate them, but I'm playing horizon and I can adjust the difficulty. This is one of the main reasons why I love the game. Like you can adjust the difficulty in the exact way you want, where I can turn off all notifications, all item icons, everything, have it just look like a straight 3d movie. 
turn off like the little numbers you see when you hit a machine and it tells you like I turn all that off, but then I turn everything else up. I turn all the difficulties up, make it the hardest game possible. And it feels and it's very hard. It it can get very hard. I'm like, I like the fact that I can tailor this to what I want to play. And when you mention that to somebody who likes from software games, it's like, no, like, no, it should be like director's intent. It should be, I'm like, I don't agree with that. Like, I just don't agree with that. Like, I get it. I understand it. But it's a video game. Like, I should be able to tailor this to how I want to play it. Ben, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think that is like generally a good practice in games. I don't, I also don't think that it it is something that all games need to have. And I see the, the um, benefits of not having selectable difficulty. If you give players too much, I, I forget what exactly the, or who this quote is attributed to, but it might be, might be Sid Meier. Um, that's who made civilization. Right? Civilization, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he said, if you <laughs> if you let them, players will optimize the fun out of everything. Yes, yeah. To where you you know you're you're making the the experience as streamlined as possible to the detriment of the experience. I perfectly worded, and. You can still do that in, in Souls games. You can still do that. Any Anytime you ever see someone talking about farming souls, they are uh, optimizing the experience to the detriment of it because they're not, they're not playing in a way that's actually fun. They're playing in a way that uh, allows them to, you know, min-max. And, and, um, and, and, you know, that's not to minimize, like, other, you know, kind of metagame type things like speedrunning where there's there's certainly a, a level of fun and achievement to seeing how you can test the limits of the game and break it in certain ways to manipulate it to that extent. But I'm talking about like when someone is just going out of their way to make the game less fun so or or less interesting of an experience, less uh impactful of an experience for the sake of being able to get through it quicker or for the sake of not having to kind of grapple with the experience that is intended. It's, it is way too easy to do that in most games. For the most part, people, many people will criticize this type of thing where your, your difficulty slider is basically just like making the enemies more bullet spongy. That's not a good way to do difficulty. Similarly, it's not a good way to do difficulty by sapping out all challenge from the game. Because if you don't have challenge, you have less engagement. Challenge is a way to engage players, right? And that's, that's actually, I mean, I, I think Miyazaki is quoted as saying, the difficulty in these Souls games, or you know, the difficulty as part of Demon Souls, the first game in the series, the intent with that was not to punish players. The intent was not to be the hardest game ever. The intent was to immerse people in the experience. Because when, because when anything can kill you and come out from behind a corner and stab you in the back, you are paying more attention to what's going on. When any door can hold 
an item that's going to change the course of your play for the next hour, you are looking behind more doors. You're, you're grappling with the experience to a deeper extent. I don't see how you add in an easy mode or, you know, sliders to the game where you can tune the experience to what you want without opening up the possibility for people to optimize the fun out of their, out of their experience. Well, it takes uh, away all the weight behind everything. You you no longer feel that sense of, oh, I have, you know, 10,000 blood echoes. Do I go through this next door and see what's behind it? Or do I go all the way back and turn them in? Uh, or do I, do I take that next turn? When literally anything can kill you. Those games, like, you could go through this. I could go the same path several times, and I'll, I'll have one misstep, and I'm dead by some enemies that I was just destroying before. It's like, I, I get what you're saying, per se, but it seems like these are the only games that we give this credence to. Like, most other games have difficulty sliders. Like, the vast majority of them have difficulty sliders. But, and I, and I guess their choice and everything, I'm just saying, for me, I'd prefer if there was at least an option. And, you know, obviously the main mode would be the main mode, but most games have this implemented. And I feel like from games get kind of a break because that's what they're known for as opposed to, you know, just having it there. But, you know, it's their choice and I respect that. It's just that's something that for me has always been kind of feeling like if I'm if I'm really got to get into this game, it's going to be a commitment unlike just playing through a different game. I don't think the games would be special though if you there was there's easy mode because I think a lot of people would just use easy mode and like Ben said, I think it would take away it. Some people will bounce off of it. Like you, you bouncing off of it because of difficulty. But I think the reason they're so popular is this difficulty is, is the big draw of the game. It isn't the hardness. It isn't the hardness of it for me. No. It's the, it's the time investment as opposed to playing another game. Cause I mean, I don't have a problem with hard games. Like I just be horizon on the hardest difficulty, turning off all the sliders. Like it's a, it's like for, for me, I don't like I don't create that. Like if I'm like playing a game, I don't if it's getting hard, like sure, maybe sometimes I'll turn it to easy, but it's kind of trying to get through it. No, this is something we talked about last week, I think. Um, like with Horizon, I turned all the enemies up to story mode difficulty because I wanted to feel like a superhero just going through there. Uncharted, I do the same thing. I turn it I I, I play on super easy mode. Because I just want to blast through it, and I want to feel like a superhero, and I want to destroy everybody. Even Spider-Man, I do the same thing. Because I don't want to be hitting these enemies 50 times. I don't feel like Spider-Man. I don't feel like Nathan Drake, like James Bond or whatever, you know? But with Dark Souls, it's these are the games that... And I feel like I'm wasting my time when I go through Uncharted, and I'm just dying over and over and over again. But for whatever reason, with Elden Ring and Dark Souls, Soulsborne games, I feel like my time is not wasted. For whatever reason, like I, the other night, I spent two hours going back and forth between two bosses, and I mean, I, I, for some reason, I just don't feel like I'm wasting my time. I mean, I do, do to an extent, but I feel like it warrants my time. Like, like the game deserves my time. <laughs> I, I, I think it's all, uh, part of that is like the the reward structure that the game has built and the fanfare around surmounting difficult obstacles, so that when you eventually clear the hurdle that you're bumping up against after two hours. It doesn't feel like finally I got through that fucking annoying part that I kept dying in. It feels like, yes, I felled this 
incredible monster and you know i i finally did it i achieved something right it's 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 all about like what your frame of mind is it's not yay i can't wait to get to the next cutscene. It's, it's kind of the way i play the metal gear games <laughs> even though i like those games it, it's not yay i can i can finally get to the next cutscene. it's you know this is this is a story this of of me overcoming uh adversity and um so to whatever extent you are lessening that adversity you are robbing from that experience of of ultimately you know uh completing this these challenges so i i mean like i don't think every game needs dynamic difficulty that players can can choose i get i get this idea that these games are so acclaimed and everyone sings their praises and some people just they try and try and try and they can't get it it doesn't click for them there are plenty of games that are like that you know uh, there are plenty of games that are less success uh, accessible than these games and a lot of them are on pc (laughs) Uh, just to throw that in there hey, and, um, and not for reasons of difficulty but for patches and bugs and plugins and all this other kind of crap you gotta get yeah, yeah but not, not just that but like also <laughs> depth like any 4x game you're gonna have to read manuals of explanation for how to play the hell and, and you know anything in like uh in an age of empires game or you know oh, elite a, dangerous is one of them. The, the, spa- the space game like mm-hmm. star citizen all these kind of games like that too so there are plenty of games with with big barriers to entry where you have to come to grips with the with what the game wants from you. And oh, Destiny's one of them too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I I I don't think the moment to moment gameplay in Destiny is is comparable because even small things in the Souls games are are big challenges to to somebody who's new to the experience. Um so I but at the same time, like, is it possible? Is it possible for everyone to have the intended experience while being able to select into, you know, something less mind-numbing? I don't know. I I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think I think the challenge is part of it. I think the challenge is an, an indelible part of the experience. I think you um, made a really good argument for this because, yeah, that yeah. I mean, that's I definitely get what you're saying. It's definitely an artistic expression that they are and they they have made the game with that in mind, that this is a challenging experience. This is meant to be a, you know, put a lot of time into this, but it's going to pay off that you're going to get from this is gonna feel a lot better than a game where you can just kind of adjust your difficulty however you go so i i I get that i definitely get how you're saying that's how it's too cool yeah at the same time like we've been saying it this is the easiest souls game i think um hands down and it's also the most um the most uh approachable yeah approachable in the sense that like when you when you're stuck on something, there's plenty of other other things to do, and there are plenty of like techniques that you can adopt and and builds you can spec into that make combat much less challenging. 
so you know, we, we talked about this more in depth last pod and and Matt Bliss is in the comments. He he joined us last week. He's talking about growth mindset and learning from failure and the the reward structure in in Elden Ring and in the Souls game is all about growth mind growth mindset and like a, uh, approaching problems in a way so that you you get better over time and you you learn about them and you become better at the thing rather than just like moving on to the next phase um that's yeah i i don't think like you have that special sauce if if it's if it's just easy to get through everything anyway yeah i agree i agree i agree <laughs> and i think well i don't fully agree with every everything about that i do understand what you're saying and i think it is a good conversation have you ever wondered about films that never made it to the big screen or even television and streaming services? Well then, the Screenplay Archaeology podcast may be for you. On our show, we take a look at scripts or teleplays that were never produced, or sometimes even early drafts that were significantly changed before or during shooting, as well as the stories behind why they never came to be. Good script or bad, we consider them all to be fair game. So if any of this interests you, then come check out Screenplay Archaeology. But, but speaking of things that are hard to get through, Sony announced a state of play for last week. Did you gentlemen have an opportunity to watch this event? I did. I probably forgot it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, man. That could have been a press release. All those things could have been press release. This screamed obligate contractual obligation, in my opinion. Was there anything out of here that you all got that maybe was substantial? I have a couple things. There was a couple things I saw that I thought were pretty interesting. What was it? One was, and this is not a good thing, that Gundam game. Hmm. I was watching a stream yep. of it. I was watching a stream of it, and... And it's not, there's not anything good with the show. It's just a funny comment. <laughs> You're watching that Gundam first person shooters. Like those are some big ass hallways. <laughs> like they're, they're like in like a room. <laughs> like, that just, <laughs> like you would think that like, they would only be fighting in like planes or like outside or in space. Yeah. Like, no, they're in like room. They're like multiplayer, like a corridor shooter. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that's a bad thing, but that was something I thought that was pretty funny. And then the other thing that I saw that was interesting was Valkyrie Elysium, which was the centerpiece of the whole show. It was the last mm. thing we saw. That RPG that we saw, I was like, you know what? That looks good. I hope it comes to Switch. You know, I don't think I want to play that on my PS5, but that looks pretty interesting. I, I love anime games and Duke of Anime, so. Right. I like the anime-ness of the show, but Besides that, and of course the Returnal um, update as well. You get co-op. Yeah, that, that get looks that looks decent. It'll it be looked, interesting it to misplaced. do co-op. It looked misplaced in here. <laughs> like yeah. I I liked it, but it seemed I was like that doesn't everything else. They're talking about a lot of anime. We're talking about you know basically the Square Enix Capcom show, and then that just randomly dropped in there. But it was a pleasant surprise. Um, I thought about unrelenting best... games. So Returnal is another one example. Yeah, that was about. I was about to say the best thing to come out of there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Returnal co-op. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I never cool. beat Returnal, so I know... Which one of you guys beat it? I did. And Alfredo did. Okay, so Thomas, we're going to have to do this co-op. We, I or think call we should. Ben. I think we should. 
It would I be think fun. That, that is our goal for the next couple months. Get through Eternal. Yeah. Um, so, I send me a game. Also, and I don't know if it's just me. I played through the um the Ghostwire Tokyo yeah. reboot thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm getting a little sour <laughs> on this game. Is this the game oh, that no. Ben picked against? Was Look, that the game? Oh, I, I need oh I need to call Ben out because I remember Ben said I remember I said something about yeah the, um it's looking pretty good and Bill Ben said oh no nah, it looks terrible if anybody claims that I'm gonna bet against them and then I look on the draft and I see it's on his sheet I'm no like, no no you you guys are thinking of Forspoken no 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 I'm talking about Ghostwire I bet against <laughs> yeah. Ghostwire I never bet no, against Ghostwire did. you he said did. it no I, you I said it you like I remember gets, this you said whoever gets that I'm gonna I'm gonna go against yeah, them <laughs> and I was like I was like I don't want to say anything because I don't want to bet against it <laughs> And I, I bid, I bid like seven dollars on it because I, I remember the night, the night that you saw that Ben had done that. Me and you were playing Destiny, and you were like, "Oh <laughs> shit, Ben has picked up Ghostwire Tokyo." He played, he played he, me, he played he me had, perfectly. He, he had got it for a dollar, and he had to have bid me more because I bid, I think, like four or five dollars. So you had to have outbid me. I was like, man, I, I was just trying to fill out my roster. <laughs> I I got got, but honestly, look at and look, it's not the. I don't, I'm not sour on it because of that. But playing through that prelude, I was like, I should not be falling asleep right now. I'm not tired. Had coffee. This should not be putting me to sleep. It seemed, and look, it might be just, and look, visual novels are hard to pull off. You know, I, I play bad visual novels, play good ones. This is definitely a bad one to me. And I, the story just wasn't interesting. And I hope that doesn't ring through to the actual game as well. Most games don't release visual novels before the game. So I'm giving it a little break on that. But this kind of soured me. I, I've gone from pre-ordering this game to waiting till it review. That's a bummer. I, I also downloaded the, the visual novel um, because, like, the visuals of this game are interesting to me and, and I feel like there's something there, but every time I see gameplay, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to play. And, um, it just seemed like the game had a lot of production issues. So I am really uncertain about how this game is going to land. I'm not, I don't recall being as down on it as I, as, as I apparently was. <laughs> I got to find the pocket. <laughs> I, like, I remember I saw it. I was, I was looking at it again. You were like, yeah, whoever gets that, I'm a bit against them. I was like, <laughs> I was like, let me keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. I got a bit open right now. But yeah, that, that's, um, I'm good. Good to hear that you are more up on it now, but I'm a little more down. on. It. So I yeah. think we're about even now. Are you interested, Cole, at all? I know it's not really your No, flavor. not at all. I, I'm not interested in first-person shooters at all, besides Destiny. Fair enough. Or first-person games. What, this so never really Grand Theft Auto first? Never Grand Theft Auto first-person? No. Never? And not, only, not until it's in VR, then true uh, first-person. That would be pretty great. I, honestly, yeah. I would take any of the Grand Theft Autos. Uh, well, we San Andreas is coming, remember? San Andreas is coming in VR to Oculus. So many games. That's true. Yep. I forgot. What's that forgot. supposed to happen? We don't know. I guess they said 2022, but who knows? <laughs> um, Matthew Bliss says, Duke's better save this chat. We're writing great essays. You're writing a great essay here. 
There's a lot of there's a lot of chat in the chat right now, and I appreciate it. Appreciate everybody watching, supporting us. We really appreciate that. Um, was there anything else in this state of play that caught anybody's eye? Great. <laughs> Nothing for me. Sony, do better, please. Or if you're going to like, I wish they have a different like. Let's let state of plays just be this, and then call something like call the big announcement something different. Because I don't like to say because there are state of plays that have fire. I've seen them, and I feel like it's been a while. I mean, I remember the last one. The core game was Little Devils Inside, so the last one wasn't that much better either. Um, so hopefully they can, you know, hopefully the next time we get some great announcements, some great updates on the games we know we have coming. But of course, let's get to our next topic. And we've been talking a lot about open worlds. And so we just kind of want to take a moment, just as a tribute to all the great developers developing some of our favorite open worlds. Let's go around and say what some of our favorite open worlds are and what makes an open world for each of us as individuals. And since it's my topic, I, I'll go first, kind of. Um, my favorite open world in any game, period. Is New York City and Spider-Man. This is. Because to me, an open world succeeds when you don't think about the algorithms going into it. You don't think about any of the things of how this is working. It's just working how it's supposed to. New York reacts exactly how I would expect it to react when Spider-Man's there. You know, when I'm in the skies, it looks fucking beautiful. I see on my radar that there's crime. Go get the crime. When I'm on the ground, whether I can go up and swing back or I can walk through the streets and greet all the good people because I'm Spider-Man. I think that it's so simple. It's not trying to do a lot. Like, obviously, it has the side quest. It has the main quest and everything. It's a very basic open world. But what it gets right to me is just so perfect. And yeah, that one's probably my favorite, but I think an open world succeeds where you can completely get lost in it. And that's how I define what I think is a great open world. That's interesting. I I, I don't know that Spider-Man would be on my list. I even though I really lo- love that game, um the way you are kind of above the fray, I mean quite literally swinging above the concerns of the people in the city detaches me from it a little too much there's plenty to do there's plenty to see yeah you can walk in the streets among the civilians but there's not a hell of a lot of reason to um, it's just it's just a you know palate cleanser you know you see you go yeah. in the streets get some high fives also matthew bliss in the chat said something really why it, it really did spell out why i love it well, I'd argue a good open world is when you can want to run the world without exclusively using the map to get the job done. That's Spider-Man in a nutshell for me, because I can count on my fingers how many times I use fast travel. Because that's why? yeah, why? I, I I disagree though. Like I don't think that makes a good open world. I think that has actually very little to do with the open world. I think you could have a a much more poorly constructed open world, and still not want to use fast travel if the traversal is good like that has more to do with how you're moving through the space the mechanics yeah exactly but i think that but i think that's a part of what makes an open world an open world the traversal i think the traversal through the open world is a 
important part. It's, I don't think every game has to have great traversal to be a good open world game. But for me, some of my favorites have a great traversal system. Yeah. Even like something yeah. like Grand Theft Auto. Like Grand Theft Auto, I don't think has fast travel. Could be wrong about that. Um, it does. Think- the taxis, you can take a taxi and you can skip to your destination. Right, right. But I never do it. No, nah, no one ever does. Driving so fun. It's the right, best exactly. driving in any game it, ever. Exactly. You know, it's like I think of some like maybe Skyrim. I guess would be one I like that. You know, I can't say I like the traversal, but for yeah, me, the, the like, games all have pretty like poor traversal. Yeah, but Breath, even Breath of the Wild, like I love just climbing all the way up to the top of a mountain and then sailing down with my little glider like that. That traver- to me, like traversal for a lot of open world games is a big part of it for me. But I know that it can vary for people. Um, and it's it's a world that feels like believable, and mm-hmm. yeah, and, and and a world that's very well crafted too. Mm-hmm. You know, like like Grand Theft Auto. I mean, you walk through that, you you walk through the city, and it is every street corner, every alleyway. It's all handcrafted, and it's huge. And it's believable because the pedestrians act in certain ways and they react. Like to me, they do it way better than anybody because just the emergent g- gameplay of just standing on a corner and like a fire breaking out, a wreck, or like the kind of wonky traffic physics which create these crazy, these crazy um, scenes that happen. Yeah. See, um, is the it's the, the traffic? Physics. No, the traffic physics in GTA to me are unrivaled to a point where it's yeah. laughable. Oh, it's unbelievable. No, 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 no one else compares. I, I can't think of a thing, because there are a lot of GTA clones, but yeah. all of them have that traffic, because people are talking about cyberpunk, they're making fun of it at the beginning when like somebody parked the car like on the highway, and you just saw the entire, the, high, the entire highway was just in shambles, or it's like, <laughs> did not know how to, you know, so it's like, but that's a lot of games like that. Like, Watch Dogs is the same thing. Like it, there's a lot of games that don't tackle that aspect really well. You, I mean, I don't know what what Rockstar does over there, whether it's witchcraft or whatever it is, but they have you know seven what, years to develop a game. That's what it is. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's you know what else it is too. Is it's like unpredictable, like unpredictable events that happen. Like yeah. Red Dead Redemption Two, you'll be riding your horse, you get off, you're you're hunting, all of a sudden a bear attacks yeah. you, and then mm. all of a sudden you're dying, and the bear gets attacked by a lion. You know, it's just these crazy, unpredictable things that happen. Or even the, the semi-scripted. Is coming. Yeah, you, yeah, even the semi-scripted stuff in, in Red Dead where you're, like, riding along the trail and, like, someone's on the side of the road. Oh, no, come my here, wagon come broke here, come down. Right. Yeah, yeah. You get off to help them, and then it's a bunch of bandits, and they, see, <laughs> they kill you, and, you know? And see, Horizon actually did that really well, too, where mm-hmm. once I got to the part of the story I was telling you about, there were times where I was just walk, running through the open world, and I just said, you know what? I'm not going to turn my map on. I'm just going to run around. Yep. And dynamic stuff would happen where and it, w- it would be scripted, though. It felt dynamic at the time. Like, I'm just running through and, like, I see these people getting attacked by um, robot dinosaurs. I'm like, all right, let me help them out real quick. Help them out. And then it's like, oh, yeah, we got this whole thing. We got a whole group of people over there. Can you help us out? And it's a quest that pops up. I'm like, I'll just run it through the world. And it's like, of course, that was probably always going to be there. But it was the fact that, like, it, it felt organic and yeah, honestly and, and, all, all these games are functioning off of algorithms all, all of them are but the best games to me do a good job of hiding that and make it yeah feel and organic. that's and that's what Elden ring is good at mm. because there's no icons like 
you know, in Red Dead, when some of those events happen, every now and then, and GTA started this, you'd see an event would happen and a blue dot would appear on the map. And it was yeah. called a uh, Stranger uh, Things or something. There's some weird little thing. But to me, the special thing Grand Theft Auto is when something, when just random stuff or Red Dead is when you can't really tell if it was scripted or not. Because some things yeah. do happen. Like, a, a, there'll be like a random cowboy fight or something. And I, I don't know that those are necessarily scripted sometimes when you're going through a town. or I'm sure they are to a certain degree. But um, another open world for me is Sea of Thieves. And mm-hmm. that's because of the, the, the uncertainty of what's going to happen with the other players. You can play a whole three-hour session not encounter anybody, or you play a three-hour session and you're, you get into all these big battles with other players. They're trying to steal your treasure, stuff like that. I think it's an incredible open world. Um, and Matthew actually says something interesting. Minecraft for best open world. That's an interesting pick. Because Minecraft is as, especially depending on what mode you're playing, because obviously there's the creative mode as well. Like that game, you can, I, if anybody wants to argue that's the greatest open world game of all time, I really can't argue. He, he also mentioned Just Cause, which to yeah. me is an incredible game. And it's very fun. Especially Just Cause gameplay. 3. Just Cause 3, I think. Or 2, the one that was on PS3. Well, that the bad one thing is I that- love. Yeah, they they just don't perform good. I I played Just Cause Four and it was just awful performance on PS PS Five. I think I played it on. To be fair, and it that looks game terrible. Is, to be fair, that game is doing a shit ton in terms of physics. I know. Yeah, I know. It is. Like it, maybe to a detriment. To be honest. Yeah. To me, to me, Just Cause is an example of a game that doesn't have a very good open world, but has fantastic traversal through the world. Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. that you know, I I don't when I played Just Cause Three, I don't think I ever used fast travel because like using the wingsuit and the jetpack and all that stuff is just way too fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's not like a very interesting open world. Also there, yeah. I don't know what these, cause you know, all the JRPGs, like maybe not something like persona, but something like dragon quest, Shin Megami Tensei, like these games have like open world S elements as well. And it's like, I see that. I don't think that was a real big thing for a bunch of JRPGs back then. They kind of were more linear, especially during probably like the mid to late 2000s. I started to see that change where they're becoming way bigger now. Like to the point where now Pokemon is essentially an open world game. And I think that I, I, while I wouldn't classify them as open world games, it does speak to the fact that a lot more games are in genres in general are embracing open world elements. You know, another thing too are games that feel alive. Like yeah. Horizon yeah. does a very good job of this in the cities, but when you're outside the cities, to me it doesn't feel alive. It feels like you're going through fields and they're just dropped machines everywhere, which is still a great game, but like to me Red Dead and GTA again, they just feel so alive. And and so do MMOs. Like Final Fantasy fourteen. Well, yeah, and I, I feel like with GTA and Red Dead, since they're not RPGs, there's I feel like their attention to detail is going into the world one hundred. Like that's where a lot of the, the attention to detail is going. Where but you still have some, the pedestrians and the traffic and stuff like that, right? Stuff like that. And I mean, that's all adding to open world. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's the main focus. And well, Horizon, I think, is obviously doing as much as it can. I think it's more so an RPG. I feel like that's where the attention went, in my opinion. Speaking of RPGs, I think if I had to choose, my favorite open worlds are 
I mean, my favorite is probably Fallout New Vegas. Um, it's a good one. It's just one of my favorite games. Like I said before, this this is wh- why I don't necessarily buy buy what you were saying about um, traversal, kind of making the open world because Bethesda games have bad traversal <laughs> through their open worlds. It's, I mean, it's just there's no two ways to put it. It's just, it's just bad. You just walk everywhere. <laughs> And for me, that and for me, it's an important thing. So I would yeah. never put a um, Bethesda game on my top, like open worlds. Like yeah, I like the Witcher, the Witcher Three, very good. Yeah, I, but the thing, it? the thing about the Witcher Three, as I've been playing Horizon, I'm like, I really had to ask myself, like, what does the Witcher Three do better than this game Horizon I'm playing right now? I really had to really think that through, like, because. I feel like the first Horizon didn't have enough side quests at, at all to even like justify that question. The Witcher Three was a pure RPG with a shit ton of side quests to do, really expansive main quests. Um, I think that games have learned from Witcher Three. I think that we're going to see a lot more games that are, are doing what The Witcher Three did a lot better, and I think Horizon's the first one. So I can really say. I can tell they they did a lot of their changes based on how good The Witcher 3 was. Even though I know Horizon Zero Dawn was released afterwards, obviously they started developing Horizon Zero Dawn, I assume 2013. Like 20- yeah, so, so this was the first development cycle they had with The Witcher 3 already out. And just playing through this new I'm like, I see where they really expanded the side quest. So this almost feels like as big as Witcher 3 did. Because that was the main appeal to Witcher 3 for me. Just the amount of quests you can do. And the storytelling in each quest. Yeah, to me, um, the reason I would choose New Vegas is a similar reason that Witcher 3 is up there for me in terms of best open worlds. Not And again, like not necessarily like the best open world games, but best open worlds in a game. Kind of a different question. Yeah, for sure. A lot of that to me comes down to the coherence of the world sense of place um like rules that that need to be followed so that the world can feel like it really exists and that people really exist in it in in something resembling a a society right this is something that i think the fallout games do very well i think the witcher 3 totally excels um but especially fall into vegas i uh even though this world is not particularly um buzzing with activity the way that gta is i mean it's a wasteland right it's a wasteland in a desert <laughs> so it's it's double it's double empty that this is you know this is actually something that elden ring does very well as well the moments of quiet contemplation between events are very important in games, I think. Mm. There's a, there are plenty, probably too many moments of quiet, quiet con- contemplation between events in Fallout New Vegas. Um, and these moments let you take in your surroundings a little bit more critically. They require you to have a more keen eye as to what's going on and it allows you to get sucked into 
the place. And um, when something rips you out of that, it's all the more interesting. Um, rather than there just being a background level of noise that kind of you jump from thing to thing. Um, some of my most fond memories, it's weird to say, but like some of my most fond memories playing games are the quiet moments moving from objective to objective and fallout and then like stumbling upon something that I never expected coming to Novak for the first time and seeing like the dinosaur statue in front of the motel um, having just walked through the wasteland you know this cracked highway for what felt like miles but probably only took a minute and a half or something um, yeah this this coherent sense of place and one of the things that I really respect New Vegas for is um, it's not, even though it's a game that's published by Bethesda, it's made on their tools, it's not a go anywhere, do anything. You don't get to march straight to Las Vegas and walk right into the strip. There are tons of obstacles in your way to get there that put you on this circuitous route around the map and then up back up to Vegas. And then when you get there, you still can't get in. Because you got to pay 2,000 caps, and who the hell has a scratch for that by the time you get to the gates? All of that is in service of this world doesn't exist for you. It's already here. Everybody was already living. You just showed up. So if you want something, you got to take it. We're not going to give it to you. That's, that's a great place to be. I, I feel like that is a great place to be in a video game. I, as much as I like the power fantasy, the Skyrim kind of, and you know, everything leads into the power fantasy in Skyrim, even though there are, there are plenty of like difficult places you can't go immediately in Skyrim, you're still the dragonborn, right? You can still do anything at the end of the day. You don't feel that way in New Vegas. Kind of like Elden Ring too. You're the tarnished and you kind of got to prove yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elden Ring even more so. I mean, like Elden Ring rubs your nose in it where it's like, we're going to make it you know, incredibly difficult for you to reach your objectives. You're wanting me to play. I, you're making me want to play. I've never played Fallout 3 or New Vegas. And I'm waiting for Switch. Gosh, dang. Must play. Must play games. <laughs> I'm, I, Thomas can't hear you. I'm muted. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, you're going to add another game to the list of games you got to play. <laughs> well, I'm going to wait for Switch, which I think will probably be like a year away or something. I've been waiting on that to come to Switch. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. In this <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to come. I don't, I don't think it will. I feel yet. like it would have happened by now. Yeah, it would have. I feel like that game, I don't, you would think it'd be easy, but there are a lot of moving parts. I don't know what, does Obsidian own any rights to the game at all? No. It'd all no, be a Microsoft's court. Yeah, it'd all be a Microsoft's court now. And I'm mm. sure there is a lot of other thing pressing there, things. There have been rumors recently about about Fallout New Vegas 2. And the discussion is apparently happening within Microsoft because, I mean, it's all in-house now. Bethesda, Obsidian, the whole shebang. Yeah. Um, they could make it happen. They could do it. I think they, I think they really should remake Fallout 3 and, and New Vegas. Those games are pretty rough around the edges. I think, I think they need more than the Skyrim double remaster treatment. Uh, but yeah, if they, if they made New Vegas 2, oh boy. <laughs> that would be crazy uh, no that would be, be absolutely crazy I feel like that would get a bigger pop than Fallout 5 
Like yeah, that might, would, that would be might. insane. So I think we've done a great job in kind of encapsulating what open world means to us. It's a very broad genre for sure. Because open world, I mean, that fits like there's so many genres that utilize that, but there's a core, just fundamental just feeling of an open world and what makes a good one. I think we did a good job kind of exploring that. Thanks for the comments, everybody. But that, and of course, we have to get to our last topic, which is a doozy to say the least. Um, on a sadder note for sure, there is currently a war going on in Ukraine that is, you know, obviously our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody in Ukraine going through it. Um, but just on a video game level, there has been a suspension of sales amongst all the big companies. Is that I don't know about Steam. I don't think Steam is a lot, a lot of companies. Yeah, but a lot. So, so a chief among them, Sony and Microsoft. They have suspended sales of their consoles and any new games in Russia. And yeah, that's led to a big backlash in terms of Russia allowing piracy, which is something I never thought I'd see in my life. I never thought I'd ever see a country legalize piracy, but here we are. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on this? I thought this was super interesting. It's this it was kind of shocking. I mean, I can't believe I did this. I honestly honestly when I saw the headline, I was shocked, but not like super shocked. Because I'm like, that is kind of a logical conclusion. Yeah. Like that does make a lot of sense. You know, it the only thing I, I put a message on our Discord, I was the first thing I thought of was, does that mean none of this stuff's gonna come back to Russia even if all this stuff is over? Because if you allow piracy, you're basically allowing the theft of IP. You're basically allowing mm-hmm. all that. So it's like you're kind of rubbing all the companies there. You're going you're gonna to allow, that's going to be affected by this. You're going to rub them the wrong way. And so that's, that's what I took away from it. I'm like, sure, that might be cool, but does that mean no entertainment media is going to be sold in Russia? I think when, when sanctions eventually end, when the conflict eventually ends, how long that takes. I mean, who knows? Let's say um, it ended tomorrow. Let's say it ended next week or tomorrow. You know, that's right. Yeah. Hypothetically. I, I, you know, san- sanctions would end. And then I think you would see a reversal of this. And I think specifically the language suggests that it's not, it is not suddenly legal. They're just saying that they will not enforce the law in this case. That, that, uh, crimes related to piracy and and IP theft and and that kind of thing are not going to be punished. So um, it, it, yeah. it, it would then be easy for them to reverse and say, okay, now they will be. <laughs> uh, Matt Matt asked the important question: Can companies who own what is being pirated still sue the pirates or individuals who have pirated? No, they can't because it no, is legal have, in the country. Yeah, they have no legal recourse. Yeah, not in Russia. I was about, I was about to say we. I was about to say we were master of the law right here. He <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but, <laughs> but I, 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 def, I definitely was about to lean on you in terms of like because I didn't. I didn't think you could do that. Um, because yeah, if, the, if Russia doesn't prosecute, then no, no company can sue. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, and that that's where my thought comes in. Where it's like, are these companies 
Things about it just stop doing business in Russia even after these sanctions are lifted. Because I feel like legalizing piracy is a huge step. <laughs> I feel like that's a right. huge step in terms of like stepping away from commerce with Western media. Yeah. Um I I think we will I mean like I have hope and faith that we will eventually see some like a return to normalcy and what that will take, I don't know. Um, but this, I, you're right in that this is the logical next step. Games companies have in mass said, we will not do business in Russia. And that is going to come at cost of sales to us. And that's because we're taking a stance, you know, in, in this conflict. And, um, can I challenge that really quick? Not to interrupt you. Sure. Sure. So, I just don't believe that they're they're taking a stance per se. I believe that it's not, and I even I feel like it's a PR thing for sure. For it. that's that's all. But I also think it's the fact that they're not on the they're not on like they've been cut off financially off the global marketplace. Like um, Swift, I believe is what they're called. The um, Swift, the global banking, they're not listed anymore. So for these companies to actually do business it would be an arm and a leg to even attempt to do business. So I think that that's a big factor into why this is happening as well, because yeah. And I mean, also saying you're against it, it's going to be a, you know, a win-win for you because the PR, it's a PR dream to be on the good side of this, as opposed to being on the negative side. But I do think it's also because, Doing business in Russia right now has been complicated greatly by the government. I just want to put that out there. That's that's true. I mean, I guess you could say it's it it could be in question whether the company's true motive is to take a stand. But I I think uh, reading at face value the statements that these companies are making when they are officially saying we are not no longer doing business in the country. And payment, not all payment processors have stopped, you know, dealing in Russian rubles. It's not like the currency is entirely shut down. It's just so many individual, uh, well, the one, one, the sanctions uh, prevent a lot of companies from doing business in certain ways. And then a lot of businesses themselves are coming out and saying, we're not. Right. We're not and I, yeah. Right. And I'm just saying it takes more effort to do business in Russia now than before. So why put that effort in if it's going to be a PR nightmare? If you agree to do that. that that's, my, that's all I'm saying. I think that it's both of those things. I think it's, yeah, like, it's harder to do business. We can technically still do business. Like, like you said, there's payment processes yeah. are still in place. But why? <laughs> like, why? Like, it doesn't, that's, that's going to be a PR nightmare if we go around that. I think that's a big part to play as well. So I well, think yeah, that leads on. You know, go ahead. I'm sorry. You mentioned Valve has not taken any sort of stance in this way, right? Is I thought it wasn't. I thought it wasn't for sure. I wasn't for sure. I don't think they have. I think they're still, okay. for all intents and purposes, they're still doing business with Russian consumers. So I haven't seen any scrutiny on Valve in any big way. All, all I've seen is positive re- remarks about companies that are doing things, not negative things you know, responses about that's a good point. That's a good point. So I don't, I don't necessarily, 
agree. It, so there's there's an article here on gamesindustry.biz that says games firms opposing Russia are cutting off a $3.4 billion market. I think some of what you're saying here, Thomas, about there are already being such incredible complications in dealing with Russia now. Um, like making the decision a lot easier is true. I mean, like it's not going to be a $3.4 billion market this year, even right. if everybody was accepting. Right. Uh, you know, Russian, R- Russian money. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's making it easier for them to pull out because people aren't going to be spending that much. Their 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 ruble, right. whatever, like just is, devalued like crazy. Yeah. They're not going to be spending much discretionary income. And, and look, I'm a leftist. I believe that all companies are evil. So obviously, my mm-hmm. political worldview gets a little bit in there, you know. But I just don't. It, it takes a lot of like, suspension of belief for me to believe a company is like, oh my god, a war. You know, it's just that I don't think companies think in that way. I think they think going to be a pr nightmare if we and i don't see valve like promoting the fact that they're still doing business like they're not we stand with the russian people you're not saying that it's just you know look it kind of it kind of aggravates me when when it's politically correct to do something and then all these businesses just start piling on and doing the politically correct thing because you don't know oh i hate they really mean it it, you know but then again I never forget I, I, Cole. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm I know, glad you no, mentioned that. I know what you're you about to bring up. Yeah, go ahead. About, when they, when they all posted the blacked out screen and all that stuff, is that what you're about to it say? It wasn't even that. It was when Activision said, "Of course, it's Activision." <laughs> of course, when Activision like, "We're gonna work to get rid of the racial slang in Call of Duty." I'm like, I've been playing Call of Duty <laughs> since I was 13 years old, being called the N word <laughs> at least once a month. You choose now, like now it's okay to put the funds. So uh, yeah, I, but, I just don't believe these companies think in that way. That's just I don't me. either, but I will say, you know, I, I, I hate to fault them for when, if they're doing something that's right, even if they're too late, do we still, do we fault them because they're doing it too late? You know what I mean? Like, I don't fault that, them. That I don't, I don't of, fault it, them. So, so I will say that too. I see both sides of it. Like it aggravates me when they're doing something just to do it, just because they're trying to be like everybody else and look good. And then, you know, and, but then, then again, you know, it's good that they're doing it, I guess. too. So, definitely know. not bad. Definitely not bad. Yeah. Definitely yeah. not bad. I would I, err on I the guess... side that it's good to see them, do, them taking a stance probably. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I guess what goes to my other question, as far as, piracy goes like do we like i know i know you said ben that these companies just going to come back is that a fact if russia has legalized piracy i feel like that like if they didn't legalize the piracy i'd agree with it's the fact that they legalized i'm like that is i don't think you can just like you can maybe walk that back i guess but like are these companies going to feel spurned that you just allowed their citizens to steal millions of dollars essentially yeah but it's like this is where i would agree with you that like the money is gonna matter a lot more (laughs) that's true than any hurt feelings (laughs) so um, not hurt not hurt feelings per se but just you know just that's to me that's just bad business for like the country to allow that yeah but bad business is better than no business and the company said no business so russia said bad business you know, that's like, this is the tit for tat that's happening right now. And the reason that I think it's all going to go back to normal eventually, you know, depending on what happens with this conflict and, you know, 
assuming these sanctions ever lift, which I think they will at some point, um, depending on what the resolution is. When the sanctions end and business can continue, then it's in everybody's interest for money to start changing hands again. It's in mm-hmm. the company's interest and it's in the government's interest. The whole reason these companies are not doing business in, in Russia, we talked about this last time, is because every transaction gets taxed and it goes into the pocket of the government that's waging what these companies see as an unjust war. Right. And which I agree with. I should I should be careful there to say that. Like I'm not I'm not about, like you know. careful there for all, for all our Russian listeners out there. What what these companies and me see as an unjust war. Um I don't know about Thomas, I don't know about Cole, but uh yeah, we at least I feel agree. that it's a... <laughs> Oh, I'm hoping we don't get any crazy person in the chat. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, so so yeah, so I mean like I, I, I think it um Oh I'm sorry, give me one second. Somebody's at my door. No worries. Um once once money start can start changing hands again, everybody's gonna want money to start changing hands again. It's yeah. it's um it's not a matter of everybody is going to be able to pirate everything immediately, right? There's still going to be plenty of people to sell even existing and old games to in Russia when this is all done. And everybody's going to want to sell their new shit, too. So, yeah. Um, it's going to go back. Even if we're going to be buying gas from them again and all this, too. It's, it's all going to go back to normal. It's true. <laughs> it's probably, probably <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, actually. But yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. So, I don't get n- random knocks on the door this late without a text message. It was somebody selling car insurance. I didn't know people go door to door selling car insurance. Wait, is it 12, 12 o'clock at night there? Yes. <laughs> what? Are you night. serious? I don't know. Part of me thinks they might have just been like crazy. I, uh, it's, 12. it's 12. I think they were casing your place, dude. Nobody oh. sells card charts at, yeah. at 12 a.m. They were knocking on the door to make sure nobody was home so they could, you know, scope you well, out I, a little bit. Well, I'm well protected, so it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that reminds me. I moved <laughs> into my man. house. Let me tell this quick story. So I moved into my house, and we get a knock at the door. We'll call our kids up. My dog's are going crazy. And it was someone coming around doing ADT. It's like an ADT door-to-door salesman. And he was like, I see you don't have an ADT. Uh thing in your yard and i said man i'm i'm having a we're having a rough rough time right now dogs you woke the kids up we're not interested the this person this guy got physically mad like and stomped off my porch and like shook his head stomped off my porch and stomped <laughs> his car didn't even tell me bye or anything <laughs> and like i got aggressive with him i stepped on the porch i was like I was like, what are you doing? I never get like this. I'm such a happy go lucky person. You should, you should I, was like, I was yelling at him. I was yelling at him the whole way. He like gets in his car and he's like doing this at me and stuff. <laughs> such a weird situation. Like such a <laughs> no, I was about to, the thing is, I thought it was one of my friends because I've like I do have friends who will randomly just drop by without texting me. And I'm I always tell them like, don't do that. But people still do it. But car insurance? Midnight? Oh, oh no. Oh, that's that's a new one. That's a new one. Yeah. But back to the bad news. (laughs) Back to the bad news. I mean, (laughs) I think, assuming this conflict ends, I I believe that 
we will get back to normal, but I think it's going to take longer due to this piracy thing. I I feel like companies are going to be kind like that policy needs to be reversed. If they're going to even because if with that policy in place, like why would anybody do business in Russia? Yeah, I I, I hear you, but the policy is going to go away as soon as companies start signaling that they want to come back to Russia because Russia is going to want to invite them to do business. Yeah, with 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 them, and um, it will not be the end of piracy. Of course, (laughs) you know piracy is already a big problem. Um, Hey, if anything, it's going to introduce a lot of new people to piracy. It might, it might, because they're all they're all trying to figure out. They're calling their their hacker friends and their computer geek friends, you know, that want to come over and show them how to start downloading stuff illegally. Now, look, I think there's a place for piracy in certain. Well, piracy is not the right word, but. (laughs) Because, for example, like if you're trying to play a video game that you own on, you know, your GameCube, but there's no actual way to play this game, you know, like theoretically, you can download that and it's not illegal. Am I correct? No, it's still illegal. It's still illegal, even if you own it. If you own a disc, a game, a GameCube disc, you have the right to play that disc in your GameCube. You don't have a right to play it anywhere else. That's what that's what the purchase entitles you to. That's the license that you've purchased. Do um, oh, go ahead, Thomas. No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just, um, I was just gonna say, do, do we have a reminisce? Because I have a reminisce that's very similar to this. Did did y'all say y'all had one? I did, but if you have one that's no, no, specific no. to this, I'd love to hear. It. Well, what we'll if you want to do just two real quick? Um, yeah, sure. So I, I grew up on you guys are a little younger, but I grew up during the time of Napster, like when Napster first yeah, came out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was right. It, I was right it, under it with LimeWire. Yeah. Yeah. Li- and I remember LimeWire, Lime but like, you know, like going from that time when you had to go to the store, physically buy a CD, or if you want to record a song, you had to put a cassette tape in the, in the radio and record it that way. And then to like, all of a sudden, downloading on napster napster was unbelievable like i just can't it's it's such a weird time such a weird time like we we, we'd literally sit there and just download like the entire tupac discography like yeah in the afternoon hey hey, that's not that's not a bad thing to download and now and i don't know if y'all remember this but when i so when i went to college we had all apartments and dorms you you were all like linked in and the same network and stuff and Mm -hmm. you would have uh Get, how'd it work you could anyway you could find people in your college that would have like they would have like the beatles album or whatever and you could just, right. i guess i guess it was the same thing but for some reason i'm thinking it was something different you could download it from them and it was faster or something i can't remember yeah, what yeah it, was it would called. be like off the local off the local um yeah servers yeah. like the and internet we were, the college internet there was, there was always yeah. like the one guy that everybody would just be downloading everything from. <laughs> he's the one guy at the bottom floor he's got i was the everything. guy I, I was the guy in high school because that was my little hobby. I was like, I want to collect all the music in the world. <laughs> and burning <laughs> CDs. Like, y'all, that's a pastime. Like, we used to go to Walmart, you get the spindle of CDs. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. You'd go oh, yeah. And you would burn oh, them yeah. and you would write, like, you would write on it, like, for your friends. And so your friend, like, girls would always decorate these discs and they would decorate them and draw hearts on them and they would give them to you and stuff as gifts or, you know, to their boyfriend or whatever. It was such a cool time, it really was. Because there was still the physical, physical aspect of it. There was a physical aspect of like burning the disc and giving it to somebody and having to play it in your car. So it still wasn't totally digital yet because you downloaded them all, but you still put it on media and passed out. 
Yeah, and you can Anyways, say that streaming. You you can say the streaming brought. I'm sorry that piracy brought about streaming mm-hmm. because streaming well, I, I was would the say that, answer to that. Yeah, I would say that streaming killed piracy because it's just mm-hmm. more convenient to stream than yeah. it is to <laughs> download it. And so yeah, maybe yeah. video maybe video games are going down a similar path. Yeah, because you do see game streaming becoming a lot more like um present you really do see like i know sony has i mean sony does do it but it's not great right now who knows what their Spart- what spartacus is going to do xbox has already been diving into this i don't know like i don't want that to be the reality we live in but i don't know like i don't i don't like the idea of any state legalizing piracy. like that just does not sound good and yeah, I don't yeah. like it in terms of what it means for the rest of us who enjoy. I mean, even though I don't like, I I wish that we could still have things on disc instead of have to download everything. You know, I, I don't like the idea of, because whenever stuff becomes more prevalent, like piracy, we tend to get, you know, stuff like streaming come about that replaces, you know, the need for that. But we'll see what happens with it, with game, video games at least. But. Enough about the bad stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to reminisce. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been, I think it's been like two months. So I'm going to take you all back to 2002. 2002, I don't know what games released that year, but there was only one game that mattered to me. And that was... Ice City. Not even close. Metal Gear Solid 2. <laughs> no. Oh, man. I'm going to let y'all down, man. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> NBA Live 2003. I love the NBA Live series. Not currently. Currently, EA has decided to completely shit on this franchise and release half-ass releases every single year. I don't understand it. don't understand it. But back then, these games were like my mana. Wait, I, real I, quick. The mm-hmm. NBA Live is still a thing? I don't think they've released one since 2020. But they've been a thing, yeah. Like, they've been... 2K they've released, just destroyed... They, they started destroying them in, like, what, like, 14? Something like that. The point, there's a history. So there was a game called NBA Elite 11. It was supposed to be, like... The replacement to NBA Live for EA. And it had Kevin Durant on the cover. I was very looking forward to that game. And then 2K announced we got Michael Jordan on the cover. And we're going to put Michael Jordan. I remember which that to one. me, that's the best 2K ever made. That 2K was insane. Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to put all Michael Jordan's best games. You can play as Michael Jordan in these crucial moments. And that, that. Killed, that killed NBA Live. Or what was going to be called NBA Elite. It killed it. Because the NBA Elite demo came out and it was terrible. But no, back when I'm talking about 2002, this game was the best thing going. And look, 2K was still out back then. I just thought that Live was a superior product. It just had everything to me. Like it had a great franchise mode. Just that was the game that truly made me fall in love with basketball where I'm not just playing as Shaq and Kobe and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. I'm playing as Raja Bell. I'm playing as Bruce Bowen. These are, you know, these are role players. 
Like, I really started to learn who these players were. And that's the one thing I think sports games, they do for me at least. They let they allow me to get to know some of the players that don't get the spotlight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I had a 30-point game with this random rookie, you know, I was playing online, and then I'll, you know, see him in a real game, and I'll notice him from now on, even though he's averaging, like, one point a game. You know, I'll still like remember, oh yeah, like I, I played him in 2K. He has potential, hopefully. And live use was the first game I really experienced that in. And so shouts out to NBA Live. Your memory is forever seated in my mind. As you know, I, I remember when that this was just a great video game series. EA's really shit the bed with that, but the memories are always gonna be there. Any sports That's games awesome. you all ever fell in love with at all? Um Madden 2005. I was a big, I was a competitive Madden player. I went and did Madden mm. Challenge. Actually, oh, I, think I, cool. told this, I think I told this before. You did. Yeah, no, you, you did. did. Right. I that's do right. remember that. Yeah. So I played D'Angelo Hall, which was the cornerback. Yeah, the you did tell us that. In, yeah, a, in the Falcon cool. story. And I used to play with Michael Vick and uh, me and my roommate, we, we played Madden like I play Rocket League. I, we would play Madden every night. And we, <laughs> I, would, I was the offensive coordinator and he was the defensive coordinator. And it was when, you know, PlayStation 2, it was online games. The matchmaking was good. There was relatively low lag in Madden 05. Mm. This was uh, Donovan McNabb was on the cover. This was the year after Vic. Vic was on 04. That's that's the one that had like the story mode, right? Actually, no, like... I'm sorry. 05 had Ray Lewis on the cover. And no, it didn't have story mm. mode. This was PS2 days. You know this what? Is when Madden was good. No, the one with Donovan McNabb, that one had the story mode. That's yeah, that, they introduced the vision cone. So that's how they countered Michael Vick. So, like, when you drop back with Vic, he had this little bitty sliver of a cone. Like, Peyton Manning had the whole field open, and you could right. throw accurate passes on the field, but Michael Vick had this little tiny sliver of a cone, and you had to rotate it around. So that's how they counteracted Matt, uh, his speed. Madden 2004 was, like, that was that the was Michael Vick game. Like, yeah. It, it, and I'm a big, made, huge Vic he couldn't, he couldn't lose. Like, no, I he was unbelievable. When anybody played with him, I'm like, yeah. really? Oh, I mean, I I would roll out and the and like the corner of the linebacker would be matched up with my uh my my running back rolling out. And if he would he if he would drop down and go after Vic, you just lob it over his head, it's like touchdown with this <laughs> running back. Or if he stays, then you're getting a 40 yard play with Vic. But uh I was big into that game. And, and I would be an offensive coordinator, my roommate would be defensive coordinator, and we would we won <laughs> like 85% of our games. It was incredible. Oh, that's so, I love that's so that great. Game. Man, but Madden, but y'all, Madden used to, it used to be good. Do you remember how big it used to be, guys? Like when a Madden yeah, released, it was as big huge. as Call of Duty. It's still huge. It's not like it was though. At that one time, it was like yeah, zeitgeist yeah, every right. release. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, um, quality it, went down. Quality yeah, went it down. did. Like it's, it did. Yeah, it's Absolutely. not the same anymore. Mm-mm. Ben, any sports games you? Have yeah, I remember how big Madden was, and and Madden 07 is really the only sports game that I I really got into. I had it on PC, and I played it quite a bit. I think I still have it. I have it on my shelf next. Oh, maybe Who, it's, it's who's back on there. the cover? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't. Is I can't remember. Vin- Vince Young? Maybe. I can't remember. Maybe. Vince maybe Young? No, I think he was 08. I know Brett Favre was 9 because 9 had the rewind, mm. which was the mm. end of Madden, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I, had, I had a lot of experience with racing games aside from that, though, but that's kind of a different, um, oh, F1? different angle. Um, need for speed underground a little bit f1 but yeah the need for speed games were were most underground was was great yeah underground and and hot pursuit too uh i played a ton of yeah carbon was mine on psp 
Oh, mm. I put so many hours in that game. And then obviously, I mean, last year, Forza, that has that might be the best sports game I've ever played. Like on just a pound that. for pound basis, like that game was incredible too. I do have to give a shout out, guys, because I am the Duke of Rocket League, and I do think that's a sports game, even though it's not an official sport. Yeah, yeah. But it is competitive. Um the, one of the best racing games ever. Have y'all ever played Excite Bite 64? No, I never that on. It was unbelievable. Nintendo 64. Oh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an idiot. Mario 64. Hence the 64. I don't know why I thought that was a year. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what happened there, but yeah, yeah. Oh, Excite Bike. I think I've heard of that. It was, it, there was one on NES, and they remade it for this N64 as a motocross game. And it was the only motocross game that had like great physics, and it was just Man, the racing was so good. It was incredible. But anyway. Um, well, that has been a great reminisce. Before we go, Ben, shouts out to your corner. I've never seen the little box in your corner with the is that rugs or yoga, yoga, yoga mat. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it is yoga mat. <laughs> is that is that new? Has that been there? Shout out to the box. Shout out to the box. It looks, it, looks, it looks so picturesque right now. I'm sorry. It looks really <laughs> yeah, that room is well posed. decorated. <laughs> right. Oh man! Well, you what already a good, know what a nice room there. That's awesome. What, what a what a nice room. What a nice room. <laughs> I, I remember because I remember when you first had it, it was definitely um you're still putting things together. It's definitely yeah, turned out it's come together nice, a bit for sure. It is. I think mine's gotten progressively worse, but <laughs> mine's in its mine's in its worst stage because I'm in the process of like renovating my house. But yeah, in the end game now, just like this podcast, I want to thank everybody for listening and watching the dukes of gaming podcast again you can listen to us on your favorite podcast service watch us on youtube watch us live on twix which if you want to leave a like if you want to leave a comment for us to read live on air come support us there leave a like a review a comment anything to help support the show you can even email us at the real dukes of gaming at gmail.com have your question read live on air We'll be coming at you more next week with some hot takes. Hit the bell as well to get notifications on when we release our latest videos to YouTube. And we post everywhere, every week. So make sure you start your week right with the Dukes of Game. I bid all the farewell. Is and, uh, Until next time, I bid thee farewell.